It is the eve of Thanksgiving. In fact, by the time we're done with this show, it will officially be Thanksgiving. Well, we've got a fantastic guest for you tonight. If you're getting ready for your Thanksgiving dinner, doing a little early cooking, well, Laird Scranton is going to be here tonight. and He is the man who studies the Dogon tribe in Africa. And the Dogon tribe are such a mystery. You know, they know far more about the universe, about astronomy, than they really should. They are quite the mystery. And Laird Scranton is going to be joining the program tonight to tell us all about it. And in fact, he's got new information about the Dogon, which is uh, even more interesting to me. So it's going to be really kind of an easygoing night. You know, great conversation with Laird Scranton. He's also an incredible scholar, by the way, Laird Scranton is. And not only that, he's a great guy, and I'm proud to call him my friend. And speaking of Thanksgiving and things to be thankful for, you know, that is one of the things that I am thankful for. Many, many of the guests on the program, I could actually tell you that they're my friends. And that is, uh, that is something special. In fact, and uh, made a great new friend last night, Grant Cameron. Had so much fun talking with Grant Cameron. And, well, we get to do it all over again tonight. And, boy, are we ever going to go on a ride. We're going on a ride all the way to Africa to explore the the Dogon tribe and the things that they know about. It's really odd. I, I wonder if you watch Ancient Aliens. You may have seen Laird Scranton there on Ancient Aliens talking about the Dogon tribe. <clears throat> I know they've done an episode or two where they focus on indigenous peoples and what they know that seems to be so incredibly advanced. You know, the Dogon are famous for knowing about Sirius B. Well, how in the world would they know that? No one's quite sure. Laird Scranton may be able to tell us tonight, but they knew about Sirius B before our best astronomers knew they knew about that, and they knew it precisely. They knew its exact location up there in the sky. So I don't know about you, but I am fascinated with this sort of thing. You know, it's almost it's almost in the realm of forbidden archaeology, alternative history, those things that you just don't learn in school. And, and I love that kind of stuff. All right. But there is a wormhole message that I want to get to uh, tonight. It's a rather unique and odd kind of a wormhole message. And the name that I have here is simply just mom and dad. And so here's the message. Hi, Heather. My wife and I are parents to a wonderful nine-year-old boy. But we have long suspected our little angel is a psychic vampire. He seems to feed off of our energy, draining us and powering himself up. What can we do? How can we unvamp him? Well, first off, this is a this is a tricky, very tricky question, actually. Very tricky question and a very difficult question to answer. So I thought I would hit that right out of the gate here tonight. Um, you know, children, raising children, and, and full disclosure here, I have never raised a child, so that ought to be right out front and center. I've babysat a lot of children, that does not qualify me, and, um, well, I do have some thoughts on this, though. I really do have some thoughts on this. Um, children are quite demanding. They are already very demanding. And I guess that's the contract that you enter into. That's the agreement that you enter into when, uh, when you decide to have children. 
you kind of know already this is going to take a lot of your time and a lot of your effort, but that time and effort comes from a place of love. And, uh, and that is exactly what the world needs so much more of. <clears throat> so much more of. So to answer the question here, I think this question has a simple, a rather simple answer. And it is this. It is this. Uh, you've got to shift the focus, mom and dad. Shift the focus away from the psychic vampire thing. That is so important. It's important because, well, the more you focus on that aspect, the more... Uh, clear it's going to be, the more brought into the focus it's going to be. And you don't want to do that. But what you do want to do to unvamp him, (laughs) if you will, is to focus on every single thing that your nine-year-old does right. You see, that's how you reverse the process. So remove psychic vampire and all of those thoughts and all of that entire thought thread in your mind. Remove that completely. And just focus on everything he does right and reinforce that, actually. That is the best way to do it. And it will take a little bit of time, but I guarantee you, in a month or two months, you keep focusing and rewarding him for everything that he does right. And I mean even little things like coming to, I don't know, bring you a flower or children do those kind of things, right? I remember hanging out with my friend's kids one time on a camping trip, and just for no reason at all, a little girl just ran up to me with this little tiny flower, little wild flower that she found, and just gave it to me. It was the sweetest thing. And children are like that. Those are the type of things to uh, to remind the nine-year-old, oh, that is so awesome. This is the right thing to do. Give him a hug. And that sort of a thing. Uh, when he's curious about something, when he's curious about the world, you know, you reward that by answering his question and uh, reinforcing his curiosity about the world. That leads children to go investigate things. And, uh, and that's what life is all about, learning about this crazy world that we live in, including the Dogon that we're about to talk about tonight. And that is the best advice I could give you on that. Um, and I honestly think that would turn it around. It would turn it around. Uh, but you got to shift the focus from the psychic vampire thing to uh, let's let's focus on what he's doing right, and uh, and that will make a big big difference. But it does take time. <clears throat> but I do appreciate the question and the concern. Now I've got a few kind of funny stories to go over tonight, just because I was in the mood for. Something kind of silly, and I've got one really cool story here. Speaking of learning about this crazy world, did you hear about this? There was an underwater castle in Turkey just discovered in the bottom of a lake. This is so cool to me. I was really fascinated by this tonight. Um, So researchers who were studying a vast lake in eastern Turkey unearthed the remains of a 3,000-year-old castle buried beneath those waters just incredible unbelievable doesn't that set your imagination on fire you know it does to me i start imagining well what does this castle look like why has it been there for three thousand years who lived there at the time three thousand years ago you know when i imagine a castle especially one of this size 
I imagine uh, at the time in its heyday, you know, filled with people, filled with animals, probably gardens growing. You know, the castles have huge kitchens just bustling with activity all the time, or at least they used to. And I imagine what the life must have been like at the time, 3,000 years ago. And how long, how long did people thrive in this castle? But way, way back, 3,000 years ago, it brings up a lot of interesting questions. Well, so far, the researchers know just a little bit, and the archaeology is uh, continuing, the excavation is continuing, and we're going to learn more about this uh, over time. But here's what we know so far. The castle likely dates from the reign of the ancient Urartu kingdom, uh, which grew up around Lake Van during the Iron Age. And researchers have identified the castle as Urartian, because the stone used in its construction is characteristic of the Urartian culture. And the Urartians left the area around Lake Van as the waters rose, but their buildings, unfortunately, were reclaimed by the lake. And full excavations have yet to be carried out, so researchers don't know exactly how tall the walls of the castle are, Apparently, there's a great uh, portion of the castle that's actually buried under the lake bed floor, which does make sense if it's been 3,000 years. Uh, But what we do know about the castle walls that are visible is that some of them are around 10 to 13 foot high, and some of these castle walls are even visible, um, you know, from the water, which is incredible. And the ruins, get this, the ruins of this entire area are about a half a square mile. Now, that is a serious, serious castle there. Big, big, very big size. So we're in luck to even know about this discovery because researchers say the alkaline water of the lake allowed the castle to remain preserved in excellent condition. And here's just another thought that I had about this. This is really so cool. What will we find inside the castle? Will we find anything, you know, that would have lasted 3,000 years? Will we find tools? Will we find trinkets, jewelry, anything like that? Will we find, uh, well, it'd have to be, it would have to be sealed very, very well. Uh, but will we find any sort of carvings, any sort of scrolls or anything like that deep in there? You know, if, if it's buried under the lake floor, you know, we might be surprised what they'll find in there. So a previous study of the lake discovered stalagmites, well, up to 33 feet in length, and the researchers named them underwater fairy chimneys. <laughs> this is in the same location as the castle. And the local governor said studies were done on the underwater portion of the historic Urartian castle in our city, revealing it to be nearly 3,000 years old. And one of the archaeologists actually said, we have shared all these findings with the world because it's a miracle to have found this castle underwater. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, really, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, great out-of-body experiences are made of. If you are experiencing with out-of-body travel and astral travel and that sort of thing, wouldn't this be an ideal location to try to go to? Go underwater to the Lake Van in northern Turkey and see if you can get under the water and view this underwater castle. Pretty cool.
All right. Well, on to a couple of funny stories that I got here. I don't know if you have heard about this, but we've got a time traveler in our midst. Oh, oh, time traveler, time traveler. You know, that reminds me of something. Since it is Thanksgiving Eve and uh, I, well, have so many so many blessings to count. In fact, I was doing that right before the program. I got a early. I got ready early tonight, and I decided with my spare time just to sit there and, and count some of my blessings. And um, you know what? First of all, speaking of this time traveler, he is stuck in our time, apparently. And I'm thankful that I am not in a time travel paradox right now. <laughs> I know it sounds silly. But it's true, you know? There are blessings to be counted. But I'm thankful for all of you out there. All of you out there have been with me on this ride, and you gave me a chance. And look at this. It is two years later. Two years later, and you're still with me. And, you know, I don't have the proper command over the English language to tell you just how thankful I are. I am about that. I can't even talk tonight. Uh, But you know what? A lot of you tell me that you're thankful for the program, too, that I keep you up at night if you're driving down the road or you're studying for college or drawing. I know there's some some artists out there listen to the program and draw while the program is on. So many different explanations that I get from many, many of you out there that are thankful for the show. Well, if you want to show your appreciation for the program, real easy. Just sign up to become a time traveler to the program. You know, I I make a big effort to not turn this show into an infomercial. You know, I know a lot of guests come on and they have this to sell or that to sell or whatnot. And I hardly ever mention, you know, sign up to become a time traveler. I hardly ever mention it. I'm more focused on delivering you the best show I know how to deliver you. And so I don't say this nearly often enough, but it's true. If you sign up and you become a time traveler to Midnight in the Desert, <clears throat> you're doing a you're doing a couple of things there. You're helping to keep us on the air. And you're telling us that you want us to continue doing what we're doing here, that you that you want more of what we've got to deliver to you. And so if anybody wanted to do something for me, or Midnight in the Desert, or the show, Keith Rowland, who does uh, all he does to keep the program on the air. Producer Michelle works herself to the bone to get us the very best in paranormal guests out there that we can find. And she has to put up with me. <laughs> but seriously, if you wanted to show some appreciation for the program over the Thanksgiving weekend coming up here, or just over the holiday season, all you'd have to do is become a time traveler. Uh, it's only four ninety nine a month, and it helps to keep us on the air. You know, we don't have big, huge corporate sponsors. And, uh, well, this is sort of an independent operation here. We're sort of doing our own thing. And if you want us to carry on, boy, that would be the way to do that. Plus, plus the added benefit of being able to give me a hard time through the wormhole. You can send your comments, your questions, your complaints, your confusion, whatever you've got. You can send that right on in through the wormhole and I'll do my best to get the comments and questions on the air. It adds to the conversation because this isn't a show that is meant to just come at you. This is a show that's meant to involve you and uh, and be a part of it, which many of you have. And again, I'm so thankful for that. 
you know, all this coming Thanksgiving weekend, I'm taking off tomorrow, Friday, and the coming Monday. We're going to have some replays on. And, uh, you know, going through my head as I'm recharging my batteries are going to be all of your great phone calls, the great conversations we've had on the year. I mean, we have had a hell of a time this year. We really have. And uh, so I want it to keep going is all I'm really trying to say. And the way for it to keep going is to sign up and become a time traveler. That really is the bottom line. And we've also had a lot of disagreements over the year, too. It's been a rough year. It's been a rough year. But, you know, I think about that old Warner Brothers cartoon. Remember the sheepdog and the coyote? They fought like you would not believe all the time. But then at 5 (laughs) o'clock, the horn would ring and they would clock out and be buddies all over again. Well, I look at Thanksgiving as exactly that. We're clocking out at 5 and we're going to be buddies now, at least for a little while. After the Thanksgiving weekend, we can get back to disagreeing on different things. So back to our time traveler. Have you heard about this time traveler? He, He calls himself Noah. And, well, he says he's here from the future. I don't know if you've seen this. We do have it linked up on MidnightInTheDesert.com right now if you don't want to go out looking for it. And I've really, I've got this in my truth or trash basket tonight because I don't quite know what to make of this. Um, The video was published by Paranormal Elite. And it shows a young man who asked to be called Noah. His face is blurred out to protect his identity. And he claims to have been a government employee that worked on some government project. And he is afraid that he's going to be now assassinated. Well, okay. I would think if he's working for a high-level government program, even if his face is blurred, he's still might be identified by those, you know, working for him or that he is working for. Sorry. He also makes uh, some interesting statements here. He says that he suffers from anxiety and depression as a result of all the time traveling. He also says that he's truly 50 years old, but that he's taken top secret drugs from the U.S. government to bring him back to his youth. And that's why he looks to be 25 years old right now. Well, As usual, it continues to get interesting. He said, and I quote, it is not my intent to deceive anybody. I want to be clear. My sole objective is to prove to you that time travel exists. In fact, I myself am a time traveler. Now, he says that time travel has been possible since 2003, but that that's not planned to be released to the public until 2028. Uh, and then he starts to get emotional in the video. He starts to get a little bit emotional and he, he puts his face in his hands. And then he goes on to explain that his natural year is 2021. And then he's very emotional by this point, And he claims that he's been fired and he's not allowed to go back to his natural time. He says, I'm stuck here. But that's only four years difference. And then I and then I thought about it. I thought about it. Okay, but wait a minute. How would it feel to me if I was back in 2013? Back in 2013, I don't know that I would like that very much. That might uh, give me just as much grief. Who knows? Well, the group over there, Paranormal Elite, I don't know anything about Paranormal Elite, but they seem to um, 
be quite understanding to Noah's situation in the video. They say that they've sent Noah $700 worth of food and water to get by for a while. Well, then, at the very end, I think is the most interesting part. Noah tells us a few facts about our coming future. He says that electric and self-driving cars are going to be dramatically improved and that a consumer electric car will be able to drive over 600 miles on a single charge by 2021. Well, okay, that's not too far out there. I mean, electric cars right now can go 400 miles on a single charge, so... And I guess we're in our infancy as far as self-driving cars go. Well, he also says, if you want to get rich, well, he doesn't say those words, but he says to invest in sustainable energy and artificial intelligence and that there will be a, a pair of technologically advanced glasses that everybody's going to wear in the future uh, that will have the same power as a desktop computer. And then he drops the bombshell. <laughs> Here's the bombshell. Oh, man. Especially in our time, he had to have known what he was doing by saying this. He says with 100% certainty that the winner of the 2020 U.S. presidential election will be, oh, everybody's favorite guy, Donald Trump. So I don't know. I really don't know. Nobody's taking him seriously. That's the thing. No one's taking him very seriously at all. So I I present this to you and ask, truth or trash on Noah the Time Traveler? I don't know him, and I don't know... I, I do know people will do almost anything for YouTube views and clicks. So who knows? Um, but, but, have you ever lost your car? I mean, really, really, really lost your car? Can you imagine parking your car someplace and completely forgetting about it for 20 years? Oh, this happened. This definitely happened. You can't make it up, as kids like to say. Um, <laughs> back in 1997 in Frankfurt, a man actually reported his car stolen to the police. Uh, apparently, I don't know, he was out gallivanting on the town or something. He parks his car, he forgets it, and he just assumed that it had been stolen. Well, imagine the look on his face when the police called him and told him, hey man, we found your car. <laughs> and it only turns out that they found his car because, uh, well, there was an old industrial building that was due to be demolished and the car was in the way. So they had to call him and he actually went, he's now 76 years old, he actually went, uh, the police drove him and his daughter to be to find his car. <laughs> and it is no surprise to any of us that the car wasn't running anymore, uh, and it was scrapped. But apparently this has happened a couple of times in Germany. There was another case in Germany where a man uh, had parked his car, again, out gallivanting at night, having a great time. In Munich this time, he forgot where he parked, and uh, he reported his car missing to the police, stolen, rather, to the police as well. And then, uh, let me see, oh, that's right, he had 40,000 euros in the trunk of that car, along with 50,000 euros were the tools in his car. And uh, it turns out that he did find it. Uh, he reported it missing to the police, and then two years later... The police found his car and he got reunited with his car. Although there's no comment about the 50,000 euros uh, were the tools or the 40,000 euros in cash that was there. I tell you what, people are so funny sometimes. Anyhow, uh, we do got to take a break right now. 
And when we come back, Laird Scranton will join the program and we'll discuss the mysterious Dogon tribe out in Africa and all the things they know. You know, I've always found this to be so fascinating and tonight is a perfect night to have this discussion. So we'll uh, take us a break here and when we come back, we'll do just that. I hope everybody's busy cooking busy getting ready for the thanksgiving holiday tomorrow and the weekend coming up we'll be right back well if you don't know who laird scranton is it is my pleasure to introduce you to him laird scranton is the author of a series of books on an ancient cosmology and language these include articles published in the university of chicago's anthropology news academic journal temple university's encyclopedia of african religion and the encyclopedia britannica remember the encyclopedia britannica he is also featured in John Anthony West's Magical Egypt documentary series and in Carmen Bolter's documentary, The Pyramid Code. Excellent documentary. I highly recommend. He is also a frequent presenter at conferences whose focus is on ancient knowledge. These include Walter Cruttenden's uh, Conference on Precession and Ancient Knowledge. The A.R.E. Ancient Mysteries Conference, Scotty Roberts and John Ward's Paradigm Symposium, the Fringe New Jersey Conference, and James Swagger's Megalithic Odyssey Symposium in Marlborough, England. And it is a great pleasure to welcome Laird Scranton to the program this evening because, wow, it's been a while, Laird. How have you been? I'm fine, Heather. Thank you very much for having me back on. It has been a little while. <laughs> it has. It has. You know, over the break, we were talking about this. I um, I was so terrified and wide-eyed when we did that interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I thought, wow, I just, I probably, you know, a talk show host probably shouldn't say these kind of things on the air. But <laughs> I just kept thinking the entire time, why is this intelligent scholarly man talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) This this is is the way I sometimes feel that writing these books, I end up in situations where I get to have opinions about things that I have no business having an opinion about. You know, how do I get to express an idea about something like an Egyptian pyramid or something? Well, well, you've got got a lot of research and a a lot of knowledge that we don't have backing you up. So really, this this is really a treat to have you back on the program. Uh, I am a little more comfortable with all of this now. <laughs> uh, it's toss them in the bend and see if they sink. You know? You're right. Yeah, throw them in the fire and uh, and see how they roast. I guess. Um, so it turns out, it turns out you've been studying the Dogon for gosh, how long now? Well, it's been a couple of decades. Uh, um, I don't know if your audience is all familiar with who the Dogon are. Oh, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But uh, you've got new information. I mean, most people, if they have heard of the Dogon, they might be familiar with uh, the the Sirius A and Sirius B discovery. Uh, but go right ahead. Be my guest. Uh, please remind us about the Dogon. Okay. Well, the the Dogon are a primitive, a modern-day primitive tribe, an African tribe from Mali, which is in the hump, northwest hump of Africa. And uh, they came into the public eye back in 1975 when Robert Temple wrote a book called The Serious Mystery, pointing out that the tribe seemed to know some things about astronomy that they really, had, again, had no business knowing without having access to, to telescopes and, and things like that. They knew about, they knew that the bright star of Sirius, which is the brightest star in the night sky, the one that if you followed the belt stars of Orion down, uh, downward and to the left, they point almost directly at Sirius. 
they knew that Sirius really involved more than one star, that there was a second dark dwarf star that was orbiting the sun-like bright star. And they knew the right orbital period for the two stars, and they had some other information about that system that has later proved it to be true, uh, things they really shouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what made them interesting. Uh, Robert Temple was, uh, his angle on it was uh, to say, look, folks, here we have likely evidence of, a, of an alien contact. This is the only way these people could know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And it created a, a big controversy. Carl Sagan got involved, and uh, there was a lot of upheaval. Um, I, I was sort of a latecomer to that. I got involved in the middle of, of the 1990s, um, starting to study the Dogen. I thought that that whatever I would find uh, researching them was going to turn out to be interesting stuff. Uh, it turned out to be more interesting than I than I figured. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly so. I mean, I remember the last interview we did. I, I was really trying to find something else to say other than, "Wow, that's amazing," because that's all was in my head the entire night. But it turns out now you're. I can tell by the tone of your voice, you are so excited. There's new information about the Dogon. Yeah, this is this is really interesting stuff. Um, the the Sirius star information was interesting enough as it is. It turns out you go back to ancient Egypt and you have the same thing. You have the goddess Isis, who represents the bright star of Sirius, but Isis has a dark sister named Nephthys. So anybody who was skeptical of it could, could look at that information and realize, hey, it looks like this is ancient knowledge. Also, if you dig a little deeper, you realize that the Dogen information is given using ancient Egyptian words that no modern visitor who might have passed scientific knowledge to them would have known. So lots of reasons to think it's legitimate stuff. But as you dig even deeper into their lore, they're what they're, the Dogen are a priestly tribe uh, who are dedicated to preserving um, original meanings of words and myths and symbols. And my field is called comparative cosmology. I, I try to learn more about those symbols by comparing how different cultures understood the same things. You know, the Dogen say, you know, this, this drawing represents a particular thing. Now you go to the Buddhists and they say, hey, guess what? It represents the same thing. And you go to the ancient Egyptians and they think it represents the same thing. You can sort of triangulate in on, on what the original meaning of a myth or a symbol was. So when you get down to it with the Egyptian or the Dogen priests who are living priests who French anthropologists talked to for, for over the course of 30 years to, to record information about what they thought, the, um, the priests say that their symbolic system is describing how matter forms. Oh, oh, Laird. Now, oh, when I got, is... got, got into it, I, I didn't know enough about how matter forms to be, you know, to know whether that was right or not. But I could see that they had, they knew what an atom was, and they knew what protons and electrons were. And they had this whole descending structure that, that might or might not be right. And so my, the first piece of my effort was to figure out, can you compare what the Dogen say to what modern scientists say? As it turns out, you can. You can set it side by side and see that everything the Dogon are telling us is a direct parallel to what people like Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking have to say. You can set a Dogon drawing side by side with a diagram from Stephen Hawking, and it's the same thing. It's an intuitive match. So I thought thought that was really interesting. And so one book was devoted to that. Another book was devoted to... um, 
to showing that the Dogon words are really ancient Egyptian words and sometimes are also Hebrew words. Um, the Dogon tribe is really interesting because they have some elements that are like Judaism and some that are like uh, Buddhism and some that are like ancient Egypt. And so it's a really excellent accidental starting point for trying to compare things. Accidental, yeah. Well, okay, so we're talking about creation itself. Um, is there any way to determine how long the Dogon have known about the proton and the electron, and how long have they known? Uh, how long have they known this about the creation of matter? Well, since the Dogon are as a as a culture are dedicated to preserving original forms, even with like their civic traditions. Um, we can see, we can compare what things the Dogons do, the Dogon do, and what things the ancient Egyptians did, and sort of draw a line because uh, there are certain things the Dogon have and certain things they don't have. And if the Egyptologists are saying that the Egyptians developed writing very early in their culture and the Dogon don't have a written language, then that points to a very early connection, like 3000 BC. And the same is true across the board. The Dogon calendars look like the Egyptian calendars, but they don't have the, the leap year days that came in around 3000, you know, 2700 BC, 2900 BC. So you can, uh, by comparing back and forth, you can pinpoint a time frame. It looks like the Dogon and the Egyptians were very close, closely related to each other at around 3000 BC. Mm-hmm. And then it some, and then diverged. And then diverged, yes. There was a tradition back in ancient times that priestly groups would, would set off to some remote location, almost as if to make a backup copy of a tradition. You know, you might, how you do with a computer, you want to back up a, a disk you have or back up a file you have so you don't lose it. Well, every so often, one of these priestly groups would set out to a, a really remote location and reestablish themselves there somewhere far away from everybody else, and that's what the Dogen did. They, they live about eight hours across desert from Timbuktu. Oh, man, talk about the middle of nowhere. It doesn't get more middle of nowhere than that. And one way you can trace these groups is that they had naming conventions for how they named themselves. Um, and so you can show that there's a, an ancient tribe in the Tibetan Chinese area that are are considered to have originally been black African, but um, who have the same naming convention that the Dogen and some other groups have. Um, so you can see evidence of these groups. Uh, even Even the Hopi Indians in the United States do the same thing. They'll periodically set a group out all by themselves uh, to reestablish themselves someplace. Mm, I didn't know that. That's fascinating, actually. That is really, really interesting. Well, I think what uh, what the naysayers say, because I want to get that out of the way, um, they often say, "Well, they were they made contact with a more with modern people, and that's how they know these things." So, what do you say to that? Well, there are a couple of ways to show that the knowledge is ancient. Um, the, the obvious one, the one that Carl Sagan missed, was all of this information is given using ancient Egyptian words, and no modern visitor would, would give it that way. They, these words went out of use around 750 B.C., so that's the first indicator. Mm. But a much better indicator is you've got almost matching systems between the Buddhist and the Dogen. And the Buddhist system was documented around 400 B.C., and the Dogen tradition is given in these words that are even older than that, and um, surrounded by all these other traditions that date all the way back to 3000 B.C. So it's pretty easy to, to argue that this has got to be ancient knowledge. 
uh, then you have the the mythical references in Egypt. The Egyptians have all the same words. You know, it, um, it's pretty sure that they had all the same system. Hmm. Well, and then the big, big question for you, Laird: uh, What does this tell us about our history? What does this tell us about the origins—not of not of mankind, but of civilization? I mean, this speaks to me like some sort of an well external intervention. Yeah, it does. It looks like it. Um, when when you get to the bottom of any of these traditions, and I've compared from West Africa to Egypt to India to Tibet and China and Siberia, to Turkey, to the United Kingdom. And with the next book, it'll move on to Polynesia and uh, New Zealand area, the Maori and New Zealand. Oh, cool. But when you get down to the bottom of it in these cultures, what they are all saying is someone who knew a lot about science in ancient times taught them this information. They're not saying they learned it through telescopes. They're saying someone who knew how these things work told us about it a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. And do they yeah. describe? Do, do they describe these people who taught them this? They do. The, uh, there's a leading authority on Buddhist architecture and symbolism, a gentleman by the name of Adrian Snodgrass, who's with the University of West Sydney, Australia. He's one of my go-to guys for symbolism, about Buddhism. On the third page of his book, The Symbolism of the Stupa, he says that the most sacred Buddhist symbols are deemed to have been given to humanity by a non-human source. Now, the Dogen also say that they receive their information from a non-human source, but they take it a step farther. They say not only was it non-human, it was originally non-material. Oh, oh, really? Really. Part part of the reason I'm excited about my new book, which is called Seeking the Primordial, is because it lays out the rationale for how that could make sense. You know what? This is now starting to tie in with a few shows I've done here recently. Um, I, well... There's a man out there by the name of John D'Souza. He's a former FBI agent, and um, he came on the program. It was very fascinating. He had an FBI document. I wish I had it in front of me, but basically, to sum it up, the FBI had has knowledge, and they believe. We're talking the Federal Bureau of Investigation of the United States of America now. On their own website, this document can be found, the FBI.gov, I don't know, archives or what have you. Well, it spells out that they believe extraterrestrials are not flesh and blood beings, but there's a large percentage of them that are, to use your word here, non-material, that they are some sort of interdimensional, non-physical being. And then I've got this friend of mine who's a Tibetan mystic, and you know, she's been trying to tell me this again and again and again, and and now I'm starting to get it. She says, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but physicality in the universe is a rare thing. You don't understand that. You've got to understand it. If you want to understand extraterrestrials in the unseen world around you, you've got to come to terms with the fact that physicality is a rare thing in this universe. Most intelligence out there, I have no way of knowing, and I don't know how she knows but i i do take uh take her word for it in that she's studied a whole lot more tibetan mysticism than i have uh she is adamant about this and then i keep doing programs of folks who come on and say you know these beings aren't physical 
there's some other kind of a being. And then I get I get given an MJ-12 uh, document by a listener, and way in the back of this document, there's a classification of different kinds of extraterrestrials, and the last classification layered are these non-physical, interdimensional, ghost-like beings. So when you just said that just now, non-human, non-material, that really threw me back in my chair. <laughs> well, but, uh, um I, I can see that there are more and more indicators that that there's there are some things we don't understand going on. I tell people that anyone who works in the field I work in, the first thing they learn is that there are things going on that we can't explain yet. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are not scientific. Um, there's um, there are actually scientific indications of a non-material realm that we don't see and and directly. I can point directly to them. Um, it's a little tricky to explain. Both the Dogen and the astrophysicists see it the same way. There are a group of more than 200 fundamental particles of matter. Mm-hmm. The Dogen say there are 266. Stephen Hawking says somewhere more than 200. And these particles get classified based on how they look from different angles, basically on their symmetry. There's, certain, there's a certain class of them that look the same from, the, from every side. There's another class that have to be turned halfway around to look the same, like a, a double-headed arrow. Mm-hmm. There's another class that has to be turned all the way around to look the same, like a single-headed arrow. And there's a fourth class that has to be turned around twice to look the same. So the one that has to be turned around twice is the one that has the potential to move into and out of sort of a blind spot that we can't see. I compare it to um, a new driver gets in a car and is starting to learn how to drive, and they might not realize at first that the mirrors on the car don't give them the full panorama view of everything around them, that there's a blind spot, and that if you're not careful, there can be a car or a truck in that blind spot that you're not aware of. Mm -hmm. Well, these particles um, provide the potential for that to be true about uh, our scientific view also. And so that's one of the places, uh, the, the starting points for trying to demonstrate that there may actually be a realm we can't see. We know there are things going on with, with matter that we don't understand. They call it dark matter or dark energy. Mm-hmm. It's the same basic kind of a concept there. There's something going on here. We can, we can detect that there should be more mass in the universe than there is. It's got to be that some of it we can't see somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got a tool, a new toy coming to me that, that may help. I know the Dogon know all about this, uh, and they've known about all of this for I don't even know how many years before we even started to scratch the surface. But I got a new toy, and I hope it's going to help me, I don't know, get in touch with this unseen realm that's out there. It's called, it's it's like a deep trance light. It's the Pandora Star deep trance light that apparently can transport a person into these other realms, or at least allow you to visit these other realms. And so I hope to learn a whole lot more about it. But for now, I've got you and the Dogon to educate me. (laughs) Even even the the Kabbalists say that there are different modes of being able to um, sort of interface with Non, the non-material. Um, you know, some people do it in trances, and some people do it with clairvoyance, and mm-hmm. some people um, can can do it with divination. You know, re- reading tea leaves and things like that. There are different classes of what they call mystics. Um, 
the Dogen system that I've been tracking dates back to a, a very ancient philosophy called Samkhya that was passed down through India. And Samkhya was a cosmological philosophy that was a, 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 a it was paired. It was a counterpart to yoga, which is a physical expression of the same philosophy. Mm. As a matter of fact, my daughter uh, Hannah studies yoga, and very often she'll come from a session and start to tell me about certain concepts she's been learning about. She'll start the sentence, and I'll finish it. Not that I know anything about yoga, but I know about the cosmology, and it's the same concepts both places. <laughs> but in in the mindset of that cosmology, universes form in pairs. One non-material and one material. And the non-material universe is described as having perfect knowledge but an inability to act. And the, the material universe is described as having imperfect knowledge but perfect ability to act. And so Samkhya says that there are routine attempts being made to communicate knowledge from the non-material side to the material side or to induce certain actions from the non-material side to the material side. It's sort of like a game of charades. And the ways they identify that this information or these attempts are made happen is through vivid images in dreams, through what look like coincidences in daily life, mm -hmm. through the odd behavior of animals, through divination and clairvoyance. Um, those, All of those things... Um, can potentially represent an, uh, an attempt to, to communicate information. Uh, in the, the mindset of Samkhya, you can actually foster that, that the people who pay attention to it, if you're paying attention to the coincidences in your life, and the same really odd reference keeps turning up in different you know, contexts for you, mm -hmm. you might after a while think, well, gee, could there be something to this and start to pursue that concept a little bit and learn more about it? Well, once a person starts to credit that there might be something going on and starts actually following following up on that, um, they can foster more of it to themselves, that the ones who are paying attention are the ones who are, are more likely to be tried to be communicated with. Uh-huh, that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And again, this this further corroborates, I hope I don't drive you crazy tonight doing this, but it further corroborates what other people in other paranormal fields are talking about. In fact, right. just last night with Grant Cameron, he was saying his great new revelation is that when it comes to UFOs, it's all about consciousness. Well, he said that in his own way, with his own words, but basically what you just said is very similar. If, right. if you're it, paying it attention... It definitely has a, a consci consciousness aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And what, what the, one of the reasons I'm excited about the new book is because it um, spells out a rationale for how all of this could be legitimate stuff, how it could be not... Um, crazy paranormal rantings of somebody, but that there's actually a rational path that that actually simplifies the view of how matter forms that includes this concept of a non-material and material realm. And if you look at it that way, um, suddenly um, all sorts of difficulties evaporate. Suddenly you can explain things like quantum entanglement of electrons. You can explain uh, what you know, what's being described as quantum weirdness. You know, when they look at, at things on the quantum level, it looks like very odd things are happening. Yeah, yeah. But, but when you put it into context, it's really not weird at all. You have a simple set of dynamics that, that are at work consistently uh, all the way up the scale from the smallest to the largest structures. Wow. And, 
and the Dogen point us to that. And so I came to realize that this whole structure of matter that I could compare to people like Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking, and I could point to it and say, yep, see, this is right, this is right, this is right. All of that was sort of establishing a credential for the source that gave it, because there's, there's this whole lower structure below that that is more difficult to directly compare. And the reason the rationale for thinking that it might be legitimate science was the fact that they got that other larger structure right. They know what waves are, and they know everything all the way up to atoms, and they, they have it right. My so, God. My God. Well, then we got to take us a break. We're already at the top of the hour, Laird, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about what the Dogon know about the structure of matter when we come back from the break, and then we'll get into the deeper stuff. I mean, this is going to be just so fascinating tonight. Wow. Laird Scranton is here tonight, and boy, does he ever have something to tell us and to talk about. It ties together so many programs that we've done in the last month. I am so excited now. You know what? We're going to be right back and just talk a whole lot more about what the Dogon know. Well, if you're tuning in now a little bit late, or if you're in your kitchen cooking up the things for Thanksgiving dinner, I can almost smell that pumpkin pie all the way from over here. And I would like a piece. Yes, thank you. Uh, Laird Scranton is here tonight. We've got a fascinating topic to talk about. Well, the Dogon, the Dogon tribe out in Africa. Apparently, Laird has discovered that they know a little something something about the structure of matter itself. Welcome back, Laird. Uh, And I would love to get into this. I think this is pretty much the foundation of our discussion tonight, isn't it? It is. Uh, every time I finish a book, I think I have hit bottom with with some of the concepts, finally touched bottom with it, but um, that always turns out not to be a kid, the case. It always turns out there's another another level to it. The dog can compare it to skins of an onion, you know, peeling back one skin and finding the next skin to be peeled back again. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about these kinds of particles that, because they have to be rotated tri- twice, make it look as if there might be a blind spot that they're rotating through, because you shouldn't have to turn anything around twice to make it look the same. You should be able to just turn around once at most. Mm-hmm. So the next piece of this is that it occurred to me to ask a question that in 20 years I had never thought to ask, and no other researcher I know had thought to ask. And that was, there are structures called sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. Sacred geometry begins with um, some geometric figures that are used to align a shrine, like a, a Buddhist stupa. This is easy geometry that an initiate can be taught that allows you to um, create an east-west aligned line using shadows of the sun. And from that, you can align the shrine to north, south, east, and west. And at the same time that you do that, you're also creating um, some tools for tracking, like a sundial for tracking time. But it occurred to me to ask, could sacred geometry, that geometry used to align those shrines, be the geometry of something? And so I did some research and discovered it is the geometry of something. And the thing that it's the geometry of is those kinds of particles that have to be turned around twice. They're called half-spin particles. In other words... Sacred geometry, which is the very heart of this ancient mystery tradition, is pointing us to the one kind of fundamental particle that gives us a clue that there's a, there's a second dimensional realm that we don't know about, a second universal realm that we don't know about. 
<laughs> That's incredible. That is just incredible. You know, whenever I look at these sacred geometric shapes or, um, you know, going and looking at ancient megalithic structures that are based on some of this sacred geometry, I've always thought to myself, this is something. And, 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 and I don't mean, you know, it's... Uh, it's something because, you know, it's ancient. Of course it is. But, I mean, it, it is signifying something, something important. It strikes you as having, having an importance beyond what you're, what you're just immediately seeing. Right. It's got a scientific basis. Like, I look at it and I go, man, is that is that an ancient understanding of a molecule? Or, you know, what is this? Is this some sort of ancient grid pattern of the earth or or something uh, just beyond me, but I look at it and I know that it's something significant. And you have found what the something is. Some of the, the most genius questions, Laird, ever to be asked are um, very simple. Yeah, they're the ones nobody thought to ask. This is why it's a benefit to have somebody who's outside of a scientific field step in. I used to joke as a computer programmer that I wanted to market a dummy on wheels that I could roll up next to me when I was having a problem with a computer program, talk out the problem to the dummy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When you have to explain things to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, suddenly things pop out that that your assumptions you see your own assumptions about things Mm -hmm. yes exactly (laughs) right yeah and well and you're not going to get a whole lot of attitude from a dummy (laughs) (laughs) but as the the simple-minded question that very often turns up the answer okay so now we have these two universes samkhya says universes form in pairs and that um, they say that there's a cycle of energy that flows between the universes that they compare to the natural water cycle. The natural water cycle is um, it, it's where water in lakes and oceans get evaporated to form clouds that then get uh, rise up over the mountains, create rain that then flows back to the sea. If we didn't have that cycle of water happening on our planet, there wouldn't be any life. What the Dogen say, and the Samkhya philosophy says, that if we didn't have this cycle of energy between the two universes, there wouldn't be any life in the universe. So that, as it turns out, that cycle of energy isn't just energy. It's also, it's not just energy that's, that's um, cycling between the universes. It's also mass. Now, Einstein said that when you make an object more massive, which mm-hmm. is the same thing as, as accelerating it, the same effect as accelerating it, mm-hmm. that you slow down its time frame. That if we had astronauts in a spaceship traveling very close to the speed of light, the time it took them to take a sip of their cup of coffee might be the same amount of time in which we spend our entire day. Time would run more quickly for us than it does for them. They've actually tested this. They've sent um, atomic clocks up into space with a, a matching atomic clock on Earth and accelerated the clock in the spaceship to a certain point and brought it back, and they can demonstrate that time slows down for that atomic clock in the same way that Einstein says it should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that if you have a universe that's almost massless, that time has to be running really, really quickly there compared to here. So it could be that the reason that the non-material universe has no ability to take action is because they don't have a moment in which to take action. Everything's happening at once. Um, the way I describe the difference in time frame, the way time works is, on our side of the picture in the material universe, time works like a cassette tape. 
that if you want to listen to the songs on the tape, you got to if you if you if you didn't have a fast forward button, which we don't with time, you have to listen to the songs in sequence, and you have to hear every note of every song before you know in in the order they're on the tape. Mm-hmm. Time on the non-material side works more like a CD, that everything happens at once, and theoretically, there are, it's possible to bounce around between spots on the CD. You can pick a track and play it. Mm-hmm. It's what you tune into in that case, on a CD as opposed to a, a cassette, which is linear. Right. And that makes now, sense. I mean, uh, you know, what this reminds me of is what we hear from folks when when you talk about uh, the afterlife and the other side and ghosts and such. What you often hear is, well, there is no concept of time there on the other side. There's no right. future, past, none of it. It's all timeless. They can think oh. it, and then that's the time that they're in. And you hear all these stories, you know, the, all the, the fairy myths and the, the stories of Rip Van Winkle, whose father, by the way, is from Orkney Island in, in the UK. Rip Van Winkle um, falls asleep and um, believes that he's been in, in sort of a fairy realm for a period of time. He didn't think he was gone very, very long, but when he came back, you know, suddenly he was old. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. And the, and you're right. The old stories of the fairies. Uh, if, There's always if you, a time element where where the person thinks they haven't been gone very long, but they come back and all of their friends have aged, or months or years have gone by, and they can't figure out why they thought they were gone for a day. Yes, exactly right. Yes. Oh, this is this is really interesting then. So there's this non-physical universe, this other universe, and then there's the physical one, and almost kind of like the way water evaporates and becomes clouds, and then the rain comes back down. This is the the flow of communication between the two universes. Okay, so now if we're scrolling mass continuously from one universe to the other one, and the dog would say when it finishes scrolling, it reverses and it flows back. So the one that's less material now will later be the one that's more material. There's a cycle going on here like the Yuga cycle. Actually, it is the Yuga cycle. I'll explain that later. Okay. But um, if you imagine that scrolling energy, it works sort of like an hourglass with sand falling through an hourglass. Mm-hmm. Well, towards the middle of that process, there's the same amount of sand in the top of the hourglass as there is in the bottom of it which means that in the middle of the scrolling process, there's got to be a period of time where the time frames of the two universes equalize. And when that happens, it becomes possible to move from one to the other. Now, if you think of this cycle as a grand year, a great year, Mm -hmm. the point at which the time frames equalize would be the equinox of the year, which is why so many of the important holidays fall on the equinox. Uh, right, and, and so many megalithic structures, um, uh, you know, point out the equinoxes right. and are they built point out the equinoxes or them. the solstices. Mm-hmm. So now in Egypt, the name for the equinox was Keper, and Keper was the dung beetle who represents the concept of non-existence coming into existence. In Judaism... Uh, there's a holiday called Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. that falls very close to the equinox. At the other equinox, there's a holiday called Passover. And at Passover, the end of a Passover Seder, what they uh, every every uh, family that celebrates Passover in the world at the end of their Seder opens a door to allow a non-material entity entity named Eliyahu to enter. Mm. At wow. the equinox, it looks like it's possible for crossover from one universe to the other, which is what the Dogen said happened. And the timing is right that the first era in which it became physically 
possible for that kind of crossover to happen would have fallen around 10,000 BC at about the era of the Gobekli Tepe. And there's, there seems to be a range of, of time frames within this. The, the, the Yuga cycle is about a 25,000 year cycle, and it has about a 12,000 12, year half cycle. Mm-hmm. That looks like there are ranges of time during that 12,000 year half cycle where it becomes physically potentially possible to cross over, and it eventually becomes potentially no longer possible to cross over. And so that's part of what the Dogen are doing, defining when, when those eras are. Wow. I mean, you're doing a really good job of blowing my mind tonight with this. So there's so much confusion, or maybe the right word is questions. There are so many questions about what happened with humanity uh, sometime between ten and 12,000 years ago. We went from hunter-gatherers all of a sudden to civilization. We just decided, well, you know, I'm just going to put some roots down now. Collectively, mankind just, well, we're going to put roots down. Now we're going to have civilization. We're going to have agriculture and families and traditions and all of this just began. And we still to this day, even though we kind of think we have it all figured out, don't know why. Uh, Do you think it was a passage of knowledge from the non-physical world to the physical world? Yes, and I'll tell you why. The Dogen, first of all, the Dogen and the Buddhists both believe that that's what happened, that there was a civilizing plan deliberately instructed that was tagged to the symbolic system. There's sort of mnemonic connections. So, you know, a mnemonic device is something that makes it easier to remember something. Mm-hmm. So the way that the Dogen tribesperson plows a field or weaves a cloth replicates a process in the cosmology, and everything they do in their daily life has that sort of effect where the way they go about their daily life is is constantly reinforcing what they learned about how these processes work. Now, um, so the reason that I think it happened, this is a little, a little bit complicated, but you'll, um, you'll understand it when I explain it. That's all right. That, We've got lots of time. Okay, that as... Okay, as this um, energy and matter scrolls between these two universes, one of them is becoming more massive and time frame is slowing down. It's called the descending cycle. We're talking about Yuga, yuga cycle in Buddhism. And then during the descending cycle, this 12,000-year descending cycle, at the point where the material universe is fully descended, it's least able to have any awareness that the non-material side even exists. The Dogen say that the material side can the non-material side can see us, but we can't see them. Mm-hmm. But that changes over the over the span of this cycle. There are some eras where they're much more aware of the non-material than we are, which is what a lot of people feel about when they look at artifacts from ancient ancient Egypt. They say, "Wow, these people were a lot more spiritually connected than we were." Mm-hmm. Well, the scrolling energy is an explanation for how that might happen. That as this these hourglasses um, come to be equalized, both sides can perceive each other, and as it becomes less and less equal, then one side can't see the other. But the fully ascended state for the side that's getting less material at the point where they're fully ascended and have the quickest time frame, they're fully conscious but unable to take action. Now, for a person, that kind of a state is called locked-in syndrome. There was a a book written by a Frenchman who had locked-in syndrome um, that called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It was also made into a film. Mm -hmm. They thought he was brain dead, but in fact, he could still blink his eyes, and they just thought it was random blinks. But 
after a period of time, he managed to communicate to one of his aides that he was still in there, fully conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Metallica wrote their song, One, uh, very much about the same thing. And it's a horrific state if nobody knows that you're locked in. If you're, if they think you're brain dead and you're fully conscious, it's it's like being buried alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're exactly okay. right. So from my perspective, what happens here is about a third of the way into the ascending process on the non-material side, they figure out where this is headed. It's headed to a point where the consciousness on that side is going to be essentially locked in. But at the same point they're locked in, the descending side, the material side, is going to be furthest removed from any knowledge that they even exist. And so the only other consciousness capable of being a compatriot to the locked-in side is not going to have any idea they're there. Oh, And so when they figure out that that's what the trend is, they take the opportunity when they can cross over to come to the material side and try to establish systems of culture for the material side that will preserve the memory of the fact that they're there so that when they're locked in, they'll have somebody to help them. Is this where we get our gods and goddesses from the past? This is where those concepts come from, but in the original form, it's not expressed as gods and goddesses. It's expressed as science. (laughs) Uh, Where are we now on this cycle? Do we know? Are the Dogon trying to determine that? There there are debates about where we are exactly. The traditional view is that we're a little more than 1,200 years into the ascending side, that we're getting less massive and our time frame is quickening. We're, we're on the, the side that's becoming less material right now, and that about 1,200 years ago is when it turned. I see other signs that make it look as if we're just at the turning point now, that we're at the bottom of the cycle, that we're mostly completely um, descended and haven't started reascending yet. Um, you'll also have different sources saying that it's not a 12,000-year cycle, that it's a much longer cycle than that. So there's debate back and forth. Um, Egyptian language confirms certain things about certain eras uh, by the names that they're given, um, like the the names in the Yuga cycle um, designations for the, the different eras. There are four segments to this half cycle and the segments are all multiples of 1200 years as 1200 years and 2400 years 3600 years and 4800 years and add those all together and you get the um, 12,500 or whatever um, um, half cycle of the yuga cycle Mm -hmm. Um, so language seems to uh, the, the names of those periods seem to um, point to the era of Gobekli Tepe as being the the most ascended era and the era of uh, what I believe was instruction on Orkney Island in uh, northern Scotland at around 3200 B.C. as being one of the um, equinox eras when passing over was possible. Mm-hmm. So then that puts us in the most descended portion of the cycle right now? Right, and one way we can tell is Judaism started counting midway through the cycle into what the Hebrew year looks like. And in the Kabbalist view, the quote-unquote flaw with our material universe will begin to be rectified after 6,000 years approximately. And the Hebrew year right now is 5777 or 78. So we're approximately 6,000 years since they started counting. If they counted, started counting midway through the cycle, then we're just coming up on the, or, or are just coming up on the fully descended 
portion of it. Uh huh. And so when people are, because I'm sure you've heard this, Laird, being involved in this uh, paranormal world, as most of us are, um, that you've heard about the great consciousness ascension that is either happening right now, starting to happen, or about to happen. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Yep. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense when you listen to everything you just said. Right, that if we actually are in the ascending phase right now, then people should be becoming more aware of things that are falling on on that cusp between material and non-material. Mm-hmm. Right, and we should be, um, if, if, if all of this is correct, then we should be starting to notice that non-physical world more and more. Right, well, scientists, the astronomers, have discovered a structure at the edge of our universe that one of the potential explanations for what they're seeing is that it's a second universe pressed up against ours. Oh, are you talking about the microwave background radiation photo? Um, that uh, it, it connects to that. There's, there are some other um, circumstances that happen that are interesting, too, that as they use um, telescopes to look very far back, you know, that, at galaxies that are very far away, and they can measure things that actually were happening billions of years ago, mm-hmm. and they do some calculations, they say, they can't explain why it looks as if the rate of expansion of our universe is speeding up. Mm, yes, that's correct, yes. But from my perspective, they've got it backwards. What they're actually seeing the effect of is our time frame slowing down. Uh, okay, you've got to explain this. <laughs> okay, that that if you're traveling next to another car mm-hmm. in a tunnel, let's say, and you can't see anything outside the car except the walls of the tunnel, and the car next to you is moving ahead of you, there's no easy way to know if it's moving ahead of you because it's going faster or if it's moving ahead of you because you're going slower. Oh, yeah, okay, got you. Okay, so if time frame were slowing down, it might look like the rate of expansion of the universe was speeding up. Oh, but Because no. in relation to what how we are counting time. Oh, man, you're right, you're right. And... I do feel it's important to point out a lot of our observations about the world, the universe out there, space, the universe around us, uh, are often misinterpreted simply because of our point of view here on Earth. Either the atmosphere will distort things or our location within the Milky Way galaxy will distort things. So we've got to take that into account, and, and right. that makes just perfect sense to me. Now, the same effect is happening when we talk about what happens with waves and particles. That if you think of a wave as being essentially a massless structure or a virtually massless structure, Mm -hmm. it has to exist or persist in a state of time that is ultra-fast compared to ours. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now, before we detect the wave, before we actually do anything to, to impact it, it looks like it's everywhere at once. We, we think, how can, it, how can all possibilities be happening at once? They aren't. What's happening is we're seeing it move ultra-quickly compared to us. And so it looks like it's everywhere at once. And as soon as we perceive it, Heisenberg says we have to disturb it. When we disturb it, we accelerate it a little bit. When we accelerate it, we give it a little mass, and we start off a chain reaction that slows its time frame and brings what eventually becomes a particle into our range of of perception. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's really no difference. There's no quantum weirdness going on. All that's really happening is that there's a difference in time frame that we're not factoring in. Einstein did, but we're not. 
Well, but the quantum weirdness comes down to consciousness. Once again, the quantum weirdness is that the human consciousness or consciousness across the board, maybe animals have this too, human consciousness itself is a quantum process. And again, you're tying in uh, to something that Dr. Dean Radin said here. Uh, I think he did a lecture I saw on YouTube a few months ago where he was talking about how you know, we've discovered that consciousness is a, is a quantum thing in that it exists in many different states at the same time. And he's right. determined, uh, he's a lot better at explaining it than I am, but he's determined that you can't have consciousness without those quantum processes and you can't have life without right. these quantum processes. And you're um, looking at it from, from the, ma- the side of matter rather than the side of consciousness, where well, at least the, the Dogon DNA are. The has said the same thing, that, it, that the DNA molecule can't hold itself together without quantum effects. Right, yes, but, right. But what I'm saying in my book is that there really is no difference in the basic dynamic processes that are going on at the quantum level from what's happening at our level. What we're failing to do is account for the difference in time frame. And when you account for that, suddenly you see there these all these things that look weird to us. It looks like these processes are random that aren't. The only reason they look random is because we're effectively trying to measure millimeters with a yardstick in terms of time. Wow. And when you do that, you can't predict where things going to pop up. It's, it could be anywhere along the whole yardstick. It looks random. <laughs> well, again, so much to talk about tonight. We've got to take another break here. Laird, uh, Laird Scranton is here tonight. And, you know, you just got to stay right there. Don't turn that dial. Don't turn that anything uh, until we come back. Well, you know, I often say that I hope one day science will be able to explain what shamans talk about, what witches talk about, and wise women around the world talk about, and that sounds exactly like what Laird Scranton, my guest this evening, is describing uh, tonight. You know, Laird, I was just thinking about this over the break. Every culture has some form of an other side or uh, has some form of a, can I use the word ethereal, um, that they, they refer to, well, when they talk about the afterlife, there's this other world that they refer to. Um, I'm trying to think right now, excuse me, of a culture that doesn't have that, and I can't, uh, I cannot think of one. They all do. And you know how they say in every legend or myth, there's a kernel of truth. Well, there must be some kernel of truth to that. I mean, this is a worldwide-held belief. Right. And actually, I see that as symbolism. It's trying to point... It's another one of the symbolic references that's trying to point us to the existence of this um, second domain we don't detect. Um, Even the way time functions, if you think about a sundial, a sundial measures time during the daytime. In Egyptian culture... You know, the sun moved across the sky during the day, but at night it would dip below the horizon and go into the underworld. Mm-hmm. Okay, time in the daytime is measured by the incremental motions of the shadow of a stick called a gnomon on a sundial. So it's moving, you know, infinitely, um, in infinitely small motions around the, in the circle. At night, that's not how time was told. At night, Time was told by the progressive rising of whole constellations. This is symbolic of a difference in the way that time is said to be experienced 
between the material and the non-material realms. We have a forward-moving arrow of time that that moves in what in moments, what we call moments, what the Dogen call glimpses, and time on the non-material side moves in what the Dogen call glances, which are larger increments. Um, so there are lots of things in this tradition that I didn't realize were symbolic, but I now understand are. One of those is a Torah scroll in Judaism, mm-hmm. which what they do with Torah scrolls in Judaism is uh, on any given day of the year, every Jewish temple in the world is reading the same portion of the Torah scroll. Um, and when they finish reading it, then they, they roll the scroll a little further and read the next portion the next day. Hmm. By the end of the year, they've gone entirely through the scroll, which represents the Old Testament of the Bible. And at the end of the year, then they roll the scroll back and start again. That whole process is symbolic of this scrolling energy. In Kabbalism, the symbolism is actually overtly called the primordial scroll, and they relate it to energy that scrolls between two universes. So we have lots of direct confirmation once you realize what it is we're talking about, the Buddhists are saying it flatly. The Kabbalists are saying it flatly. We can see it in the the Hebrew um, holidays. The Dogen are telling it to us flatly. We see it in Samkhya in, in India, flatly laid out what's going on, and they're all in agreement with each other. And that's what I've tried to pull together in my book is these you know, half dozen different corresponding views that are saying all saying the same thing. Now, beyond that, then, I also was looking for some scientific confirmation that this was a real thing, that it just isn't, isn't something that the religious tradition somehow made up and passed around among themselves. And so the Dogen describe and draw certain stages of matter that Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene don't talk about. These are more fundamental than what they talk about. And I was fortunate once I realized that sacred geometry was the geometry of these kinds of primordial particles, I started looking around for um, other lesser-known astrophysic theories that could potentially align with what the Dogen say, and I found one. I found one where what the author has laid out is a direct side-by-side match for all of these stages that the Dogen represent. This is a, a guy named David W. Thompson III. I've been in, di- in discussions with him. He agrees that I understand his um, scientific viewpoint on things. He had been a, a physics, uh, an astrophysics student, graduate student, and became increasingly more frustrated at the what he called non-answers he was getting from his professors about basic concepts like. Um, there's a, one of the problems is uh, dimensions are what we measure. We have a dimension of time. We have a dimension of length. We have a dimension of width. We, but the dimensions themselves can't be measured. They, they just provide um, an intangible thing that we are eventually able to measure. But the dimensions themselves, nobody talks about what they are or where they come from or how is it that they provide us with something to measure. So his reformulation of the physics, which is based on units that he defines at the smallest perceptible level. The smallest measurable unit is the basis of his system. It's in a complete agreement with traditional physics, but it um, succeeds in explaining what these relationships are in almost an identical way to, the way to what the Dogen do. 
And so, again, I'm laying his diagrams and his descriptions side by side with what the Dogen is saying is going on, and he understands it the same way. So we also have, besides the half dozen religious viewpoints on this that are in agreement, we also have a scientific viewpoint. Well, when you bring that in, into the conversation, when you bring in the scientific viewpoint, that does seem to match up with what the Dogons say and what these other cultures say, then it, at that point, cannot be ignored. Right, or probably should be. I mean, it can be ignored, but, um, you know... The way I look at it is, uh, people people ask me, well, don't you get frustrated by uh, lack of acceptance from traditional academics? And I say, not at all. I said, if I was the if I was the last person to understand that Twinkies still existed, the situation I'd be in is that I'd still have Twinkies. <laughs> 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 how, how bad is that? You know, and that's where I'm at. That um, I don't really much care. There's a, a group of researchers, ind- independent or alternative researchers, who are making their own headway on these subjects, mm-hmm. and it really doesn't make much difference whether the traditional academics agree or not. We're still moving forward in our own way. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely right. And you know what? If folks like you and I were frustrated at every little thing that happens every day, we wouldn't be doing anything. We wouldn't go outside. <laughs> Nothing would happen at all. You just kind of have to get past all of that. Um, well, every so often, the the weight of an argument um, sort of forces its way in anyway. Um, I'm the first person to really have a theory about um, what was going on on Orkney Island at 3200 B.C. Um, and uh, one of the things that comes out of it is the architecture of, of, of houses that were built there originally um, as part of a little village called Scarabray. And those houses, um, when you compare them to matching Dogen houses, represent the body of a sleeping goddess. Well, a BBC study was done this year talking about Orkney Island, and they never mentioned my name, but they did adopt the perspective that the house represents the body of a sleeping goddess, even though the only way you can get to that is by comparison to the Dogen. (laughs) Well, truth is truth is truth. (laughs) And that's the thing about the truth, is that once it's found, you know, that's it. It exists. Uh, What did Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, he said something about that, very brilliant uh, this year, was it this year? Where he said, you know, once something is scientifically determined, uh, you don't have, uh, you you don't get to just change that. <laughs> it's <laughs> determined. You know, of course, he said it in a much more brilliant way. Uh, but you can't argue with something that is determined to be the truth, like that the earth is round. The earth is round. We've got that figured out. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? oh, by, by the way, as an aside, back to what I was saying about the Hebrew year being 5777 or 5778. Yeah. Yes. My wife, Risa, confirmed that the current Hebrew year is 5778, but she keeps writing 5777 on all of her checks. <laughs> well, you know that how that goes. That happens every year. I'm going to be in 2017 for the first month of 2018. That's just always how it goes. That is always how it goes. You know, what I'm really curious about now is how did you find out about this? Um, actually, it's because of my wife, Risa, also. She had read a book called Unexplained by Dogen, or by, uh, let's see, Jerome Clark. Mm-hmm. And one of the chapters in that book, um, each chapter talks about some um, mystery of the world that hasn't been solved yet. And one of the mysteries they mentioned was, how did the Dogen know about these serious stars? So that's what sort of got me into the, 
the mode of looking into this stuff, and then it just mushroomed after that. It's such a wealth of of uh, questions to be looked at. There really is no no bottom to it. Mm, well, apparently not. And apparently there is so much to learn. I mean, I already knew that, that we have so much to learn from the Dogon. And I, and I also believe from the Australian Aborigines, they seem to know a whole lot about spirituality, about this other world that we're talking about. You know, they know so much about that. But where do we go from here? Um, I know you've uncovered more. Uh, what what else is there? I'm really curious about this. Well, there's really quite a lot because the if we have a scientific explanation for how this squirreling energy works, that 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 looks reasonable. That's really my job. My job is to test the reasonableness of what these ancient traditions are saying. And so every interpretation begins with them. And all I'm doing is saying, okay, they say that matter does this. Let's check that. What do the scientists say? What do the other religious traditions say? What can we find out about um, the way the world works? Is this a reasonable perspective? So um, that's really my role in all this. So if we have actually have a uh, a viable explanation in the form of this squirreling energy, we now have the potential to impact studies of uh, paranormal um, other other paranormal fields of study, like um, things like telepathy or like UFO, UFO phenomenon or. Um, um, all, the whole range of things that are considered to be fringe studies, there potentially is a scientific basis to if we can show that the the science of the, of matter allows it. Hmm. Which, well, according to the Dogon, it does. Yes, according to the Dogon, it does. Uh, there's a whole other level to Egyptian references. Um, the Egyptian talk. Egyptians talk about um, gateways between the non-material and the material that went both ways. That the crossover oh. was able to happen both directions. There are, and also because of the way the Orkney Island information plays out, um, there are certain Egyptian references and cosmological references that have not only a mythological side to them, but they also have a geological, a real-world geology side to them. It's like when Schliemann was reading the myths about Troy, he realized that the way they were describing it made it sound like it was a real geographic place. And he took the description seriously, and he followed them, and he found the site of Troy. It's mm-hmm. a real place. Mm-hmm. Well, Orkney Island meets the geographical descriptions of the Greeks of a place called the Elysian Fields. In Egypt, that was the Field of Reeds. It's um, treated by the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Dogon on two levels simultaneously. One level is cosmological, and the other level is real-world geology, or geography. So that opens up the door, the possibility that that there are, are other aspects of this Egyptian tradition in particular, where they do the same thing, where there may be real-world geography to be found and discussed and looked at that will tell us things. Um, there's a commonality of a fairy tradition between um, the UK and New Zealand that rests on cosmology with all the same elements, and you have sort of mirror image myths from, from both sides of the ocean uh, talking about certain things. There's the potential that there's reality to the the whole fairy um, tradition in Celtic culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, and actually... 
I know how crazy this is going to sound, but you can tie the alien abduction phenomenon to the legends of the fairies from so long ago uh, right. as well. I mean, a part of that old legend of the fairies was... <clears throat> and this is why, uh, once upon a time, people were not excited to hear about fairies. Because no. the, as the legend went, the fairies would come and take your baby. They'd take your baby to the land of the fairies and replace your baby with a fairy. Well, it's pretty interesting because now I don't know what to call it. If it, is it a is it a conspiracy theory? Is it just a theory? Um, but there is in the abduction phenomena world, there is a theory that maybe maybe some mothers who experience the abduction phenomenon regularly just maybe their babies have been traded out for something else. <laughs> yes, or. Uh, it, it, very hard to put a finger on a lot of that, but um, there were some two psychiatrists, one named John Mack and the other one named, um, let's see, uh, lost name off, off the top of my head, um, two of them who um, did serious studies of UFO um, experiencers, mm -hmm. people who encountered UFOs and people who had claimed to be abducted. Mm -hmm. And so interviewing each of these people individually, getting their stories, um, hearing what effects they had, had uh, they were reporting in terms of physical, medical type effects, psychological effects, doing hypnosis and so forth. And a lot of the facts that they were reporting line up with things that are in these myths about what happened with fairies. Mm, God, you know. Bud Hopkins is the other. Oh, there you go. Yes, that was one of the names I was thinking of when you were saying that. Yes, and Whitley Strieber tells me, if you truly want to understand the abduction phenomena, you've got to go back and study about the legends of the fairies and just now, look at there's, that. There's a connection to my work to that UFO phenomenon. Oh. Um, this is a little tricky to explain also. Um that as we're working with this symbolic system where we're describing these very complicated stages of matter, mm -hmm. um, the symbolism starts to get out of hand. It's hard to know um, where to place a symbol's meaning. And so part of the instructed tradition is a series of four-stage metaphors that help us do that. The one you're probably familiar with goes water, fire, wind, and earth. Yes. Okay, water is matter in its wave-like state, fire is an act of perception, wind is vibration, and earth is mass. So if you have a symbolic reference that is expressed in terms of earth, you know that it falls in the upper, the, the fourth of four quarters of this range of symbolism. If you have a symbolic reference that refers to water, you know it's in the first stage. Now, um... The generic version of that is given in terms of stages of building a structure, like a house. Uh, and it really relates, if you've ever um, been involved in making an architectural drawing, that's really the thing that it starts out being related to, that uh, the first stage, uh, and there's also geometry to this, the first stage is essentially placing points to define the major features of the structure you're going to build. Mm -hmm. The second phase is to uh, flesh that out a bit with additional sets of points. The third stage is to connect the points with lines to identify where the, the rooms are going to be or whatever the other um, features of the structure are going to be. And the last phase is to build the house. 
this is dimensional stuff. It's going from a point to a line to area to three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Now, every cosmological word also has clusters of meanings associated with it. This is what helps me correlate things between cultures and languages. Um, even though the, the Dogen language is nothing like Sanskrit, clusters of meanings associate with certain concepts. Uh, the hidden God always relates to the concept of grasping or holding firm, for example. It turns out it looks like there's dimensionality to those clustered meanings that pertain, has potential uh, pertinence to the UFO phenomenon. And I'll give you an example of how it works. Um, in one of the reported cases, a woman steps out onto her porch and finds three gray aliens on her porch, but they don't know that she's there. They don't see her at first. When they realize she's there, they turn to leave quickly, but she doesn't see three gray aliens leave. She sees three deer leave. It turns out that the Egyptian word that means to depart in haste is a homonym. It's pronounced the same way as a word that means deer. <laughs> now, that's not an isolated case. It happens again and again and again. I've gone through the studies of Mac and Hopkins um, and tried to I have three or four pages of, of situations where what the uh, witness is reporting ties to either the strong feeling they were having at the time it happened or um, connects to something odd they were observing, like the, the gray aliens turning into deer. You know, they, they see a UFO um, uh, rise up. Uh, there's its color symbolism. I think that as it moves away, it turns red. As it rises up, it turns bl- uh, white. If it hovers over them, it turns blue. These are multiple meanings of Egyptian words. Um, there was a case where a person reported being asleep in their bed and woke up suddenly and saw three slender aliens walking across the lawn towards his house, and he knew he was going to, to faint. Well, an Egyptian word that means to approach with caution also means to faint or to black out. Um, we often see or hear reports of witnesses seeing owls Yes. But they, they couldn't possibly be real owls because they're described as being four feet high. Yes, I, I did a whole show on that, yes. Well, an Egyptian word for owl also means to comfort or to try to calm. So it's possible that during this encounter, the person was getting upset and uh, whatever the non-material presence was, was trying to calm them down. But there's this dimensional translation that happens. Well, this is just incredible. And then... I, I've spoken with uh, Whitley Strieber about it. Actually, I had deliberately been seeking him out. Uh-huh. He was seeking me out because we knew we had had things that overlapped. <laughs> oh, boy, do you ever. Boy, do you ever. And, you know, as is usually the case, it brings up a whole lot of questions. It answers some. Well, the latest thing that people seem to be on about lately when it comes to UFOs are these gateways. And I heard you mention that. Um, That, again, is what, um, I mean, I hate to be referencing all these other people, but it's just tying all these different things together, which I find uh, a lot of fun tonight. So Grant Cameron last night was talking about that, uh, that the UFOs are coming through gateways and different locations on Earth. And then he mentioned Mount Shasta. And I said, well, now, hang on. 
just a second, and I had to grab my notes. I don't have those notes with me right now. But there was just, in October, a weird incident with an unidentified aircraft. And this was witnessed by uh, a whole handful of pilots. Well, it began. The unidentified aircraft flight, or at least it was noticed, right at Mount Shasta. Hmm. And all these, uh, well, it was... It was detected on this radar over here, but not on this radar over here. And then this other radar was kind of picking it up, but not all the time. So what the the Seattle Air Traffic Control started doing is telling the pilots, will you just look out the window and tell us what you see out there? And some right. of them did see some kind of a white craft, that, and they all agreed that it originated at Mount Shasta. Well, Grant Cameron last night said they think there's one of these gateways at Mount Shasta. And that, that's a possibility. I mean, the way I, I treat reports like that, um, during my studies, I accumulate far more things that are possibilities that I can't have an opinion about one way or another, a definitive opinion about, mm-hmm. than I do things that I can say absolutely yes or absolutely no to. But I, uh, the way I approach it is sort of like the game Clue, if you remember that back yes. in the day. You know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Yes. If, you, if someone presented that as a theory as a game player and you in your hand of cards had one of those cards, you could disprove them by showing them the card. So the approach I take when someone presents a theory like that is to mentally look through my hand of cards here. Is there anything that I know that would either flatly affirm that or flatly dispute it? Mm -hmm. If if I don't, then my job is to allow the possibility of it. Mm, Right. Yeah, right. Well, and I know it doesn't prove much, but I just found it interesting. Just an interesting thing to think about and an interesting thing to talk about. And I know these things develop over time as well. So we might get more information from the pilots, from the air traffic controllers that are looking into it. You know, who knows? I don't know. People have disappeared on Mount Shasta. There's really no way for us to know. But I just thought all those events together were interesting. Um, we got to take another break here, Laird. Okay. Uh, but, wow, fascinating conversation tonight with my friend Laird Scranton. And boy, does he have a lot of new information. And it's going to keep going when we come back. Let me pose a question to everybody out there. What if, we love what ifs, don't we? What if what Laird Scranton, my guest this evening, is talking about, what the Dogon are talking about, what cultures around the world are talking about, could be the source of all paranormal activity? Just what if? Think about that. Uh, welcome back to the program, Laird. You know, that just occurred to me right now. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute now, hang on. Because if there's a non-physical universe out there, well, we've got all kinds of things. We've got uh, doorways on Earth that people don't quite understand. Um right. There's uh, the Stardust Ranch out there in Arizona where the poor guy who bought this ranch, ever he wants to sell it. And I don't know if he's already sold it. I know it was up for sale, but he wanted to sell it because he said, I'm sick and tired of fighting the aliens. Okay, there's a doorway on the property, on his property, he says, that opens up every 72 days. And that's when his wife gets abducted and he's got problems with the animals being mutilated and all kinds of different things. Okay, so you've got that. You've also got ghosts, the ghostly phenomena. You've got uh, demonic entities and all kinds of different entities, the shadow people. 
uh, that people cannot quite explain. You've got all these different weird kind of paranormal phenomena, including, let's not forget, people that seem to step into another timeline just <laughs> by accident. That's happened. I'm sure you know about uh, those different cases. Sure. And a lot of those end up being fringe enough that it's very hard to get um, to anchor an opinion about what's going on with them. But this this new way of looking at things um, at least opens a potential doorway to to figure some of that out. You've mentioned consciousness a couple of times um, over the course of the evening, and there's some interesting connections here to, to that. Um, it comes out of Dogen numerology. Mm. In Dogen numerology, we're told that four is the number of the male, Mm-hmm. It goes along, I'm sorry, the three is the number of the male. It goes along with uh, the three branches of a Y chromosome mm-hmm. that determines a male, um, whether a, a, a zygote is male or female. Um, four is the number of the female, which goes along with the four branches of an X chromosome. And that seven is the number of the individual. Now, in Samkhya, they're telling us that one of the underlying purposes of this tradition is to foster what's called discriminating knowledge. And they talk about certain processes that are parallel. They say that um, the processes by which matter forms, the universe forms, and biological reproduction happen are all parallel processes. And they demonstrate that by defining all three simultaneously using a single progression of symbols. So anything they tell us about one of them is potentially applicable to the others, and that allows us to make certain inferences. So then they tell us about these two universes, that the number of the uh, material universe is four. Um, Very often when they give us information about one of these other themes, they will um, tell us a piece of information and leave certain pieces out and sort of leave it to us to fill them in. Well, in this case, the implication is that the number three is the number of the non-material universe. But that implies that when you put the two together, the three and the four, to get seven, that the two universes together represent an individual. Yes. Okay, now in Kabbalism, that's precisely what they say. They say that their non-material realm and our material realm represent a primordial individual. And in ancient Egypt, they actually have the same concept. We can actually go to, or reach down into the in Budge's um, Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary and come up with a name of this individual and glyphs that represent the, the primordial individual. The idea is that consciousness persists all the way up the scale. That actually, the structure, the way the Dogen describe it, of the way universes form, not only do universes form in pairs, but ours is the fourth of seven pairs. And those seven pairs exist in a spiraling helix like DNA. And so the suggestion is that the potential for life is built right into the the structure from the very start. So there's the dynamic as it's described between the non-material and material universes is very much like the dynamic between two hemispheres of a brain. And the Dogen even symbolize it using a hemisphere. Um, we have one side that sees things in overview and the other side that sees it in detail. And it's the interaction of those two that creates consciousness. And so the parallelism of what they're describing here leaves a completely open door to the possibility that these two universes together represent a primordial consciousness. And 
how do the Dogon feel about us normal folk out here knowing all this? Well, that's the purpose. The, the, there are two purposes, uh, according to the Dogon, in um, having presented this esoteric symbolic tradition. One was to help humanity understand our true relationship to the larger processes of creation. The idea was that if we understood what our real relationship was, that it would have an impact on how we behave. Um, mm-hmm. In the modern mindset, uh, the mindset of, of what my friend John Anthony West calls the Church of Progress, everything, the culmination of all progress in in earthly history has been to produce humanity. We're the top of the chain. The, this is where it goes. We're, we're the be-all and end-all of all of it. But in the Dogen mindset, that's not true. We're just another step up a ladder here. And the consciousness that humanity has is just a reflection of what um, may be true for consciousness on a macrocosmic scale or maybe even on a microcosmic scale. Well, then it's no wonder every single one of us knows there's more to this life. Right, because that is a, a deep-seated thing that goes back, I don't even know how many generations, that there is more. You just described, you described the more uh, very well just now. Now, you've heard the mention of unity and multiplicity, that uh, in material creation is, is described as multiplicity coming out of unity. Mm-hmm. Well, that comes down to the same time frame effect I was talking about, that if you imagine time getting quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, it reaches a point where it's running so quickly that it takes me no time to get from my house to the grocery store. Now, if it takes me no time to get from my house to the grocery store, effectively, there's no distance. Mm-hmm. So what that means is in an ultra-quick time frame, Distance is no longer a thing. Space is no longer a thing. And that's how um, entanglement of particles works. That if two electrons interact, okay, the way the geometry works, there's an overlap between the two universes. There's a space where they intersect. If, the, if two electrons um, become related to each other in the material side of things, they, that interaction is controlled by the rules of the material universe, of material creation. But if they happen to be induced to connect in the space of this overlap, they are interacting under the rules of this ultra-quick time frame where space no longer exists, space is no longer a thing. And so it's as if they were one thing. Okay, okay. And this is how and why we can use our consciousness to get in touch with this other non-physical universe. That's right. Actually, it's in that supposedly in that space of overlap that our connection conscious, well, consciousness-wise to the non-material happens. <sighs> this is a lot to process, Laird. This is a lot. To, to kind of uh, wrap the mind around, it really truly is. I mean, th- there's so many implications for what we understand about ourselves, our own minds, the world we live in. Um, now, I didn't get a chance to ask you this before the, before the last break, but what do the Dogon say about these gateways? Because it would seem 
and if I'm wrong, you can correct me on it, but it would seem these gateways would be the, the most direct connection between that other world and this one. Yes. Do I understand that right? That's right. Okay. And the Dogen represent them, as the Egyptians do, as being actual physical things. The Dogen say that there was a class, okay, the, the class of ancestor who, was, who I believe was instructed on Orkney Island, or instructed at Gobekli Tepe, in this esoteric tradition, they describe these ancestors as going through a process where they essentially enter one of these gateways, and while they're inside the gateway, are imbued with the ability to uh, perceive certain uh, aspects of non-material knowledge that the average person can't. And that when they emerge from that gateway back into the material universe, it's like a rebirth. This is what they're... they're um, concepts of of rebirth center on is coming. Uh, this class of people, uh, basically an initiate class, who um, are taken inside the gateway for a period of time, and then when they come out there, they now have um, perceptive abilities that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And in this way, their secrets are guarded and protected because only the initiated can go through the gateway, experience what's there, and then come back. Right. To then and share in the Egyptian that. perspective, there are active guardians at the gateways on the non-material side. Oh, isn't that weird? You know, in my own witchcraft tradition, we have this terminology, the guardians of the watchtowers. And uh, and we believe that they are real entities. We, this is not just a, a you know, a, a figure of speech or anything like that. I was told, and I don't know, because I've never met a guardian of the watchtower before, but apparently they're supposed to be real and that these watchtowers actually according to according to my witchcraft tradition the guardians of the watchtowers are of each of the four elements like you were talking about before and if you were to actually go through the gateway then you would meet everything uh, you would meet that element so you know if you went to the guardian of the watchtower of air you would end up going through that gateway and knowing everything there is to know about air and so on and so forth. We've got four of those. And apparently these gateways exist on the four corners of the earth. I don't know where they are. And apparently um, it's too dangerous for a human to go through. The right. human is, won't survive. Pandora's box stuff. Um, but... <laughs> um, there, there are numerous, even in Buddhism, there's a concept of these same gateways and the concept that certain people are allowed into the gateway. Mm-hmm. There, um, there are special abilities that Buddhism also assigns to a person who's allowed to quote-unquote dwell in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are supposedly in a position to request um, relief of suffering, uh, among other things that there are certain um, communicative sort of abilities that they have with the non-material side that an average person doesn't have. Hmm. And I remember reading something somewhere about when a person becomes enlightened, true enlightenment, the kind of enlightenment that you and I may never uh, achieve, but if a person becomes truly enlightened, that they do end up going through a doorway into a non-physical world, a non-physical existence. Uh, the legend of Kuan Yin 
talks about that actually that she was made a goddess when she became enlightened and here she has uh, she she found herself at the doorway between the physical world and the non-physical world but she could not go through the doorway because she heard all the suffering from the physical world and she decided not to go through, not to take her reward for becoming enlightened by being able to then live in the non-physical world. And she decided, nope, I'm going to stay right here at the gateway and I will give compassion to all of those that I hear uh, screaming in need in the physical realm. And I always thought that was a you know, a fascinating story. I didn't think there was any reality to it. I, I've always thought the story about the guardians of the watchtowers of earth, air, water, and fire was kind of quaint, and that's a cute little story and everything, but I really right. don't believe in that. <laughs> well, there um, there are also um, fairy traditions of these, of these gateways. Um, all this stuff come back, comes back to the fairy tradition one way or, one way or another. Um, all I can say is that um, each of the major traditions that I correlate when I'm testing the meaning of a symbol or a myth has a perspective that says that at, at one time there were gateways. Some of them even say that there are still gateways. But this scrolling cycle of energy controls has some control over when passage through those gateways might be possible. Mm-hmm. And because it wouldn't be one-way passage, maybe why the gates are guarded. Mm-hmm. Well, to be guarded. might be, yes, might be. I just wonder about the Dogon themselves. I wonder if they have a gateway somewhere near where they live. Uh, I just think it would be fascinating for you, Laird, to have the opportunity to, to maybe interview a Dogon priest who's been there and back. Well, the way the Dogon tradition works, without their knowing me for 20 years, they wouldn't talk about this stuff with me. Hmm. This is part of the reason I've never made an effort to go there is because the tradition is designed, actually it's modeled after the way the non-material relates to the material. I had never realized the esoteric tradition, I'd never seen it as being a symbolic, a symbol in itself. Mm-hmm. But that dynamic between an initiate and a teacher in the esoteric tradition is the same dynamic as the dynamics that's described between the non-material and the material. And part of the process is to filter out the sincere person. Because in sort of the same way that you would interview and try to try to pick the, the qualified, sincere capable babysitter for your baby. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, the, this, the esoteric tradition ultimately is an interview process for caretakers for the non-material when things are fully ascended and descended. Caretakers for the non-material. I don't know why, but I really like the sound of that. <laughs> now, the, uh, the understanding is that this cycle is going to reverse itself, which means that somewhere down the line, the side that's material right now that needs to be the caretaker for the non-material is going to be in the position itself of needing a caretaker. Well, and now so that then is the ultimate covenant between the two um, universes mm-hmm. is it's a mutual agreement and understanding that we're all the other one has. It's a sibling relationship or a, a companion relationship where each one is going to be in the position of having to be the responsible one for the other one at some point. Wow. And then the central tenet of Buddhism is compassion. 
you know, have compassion. And, and here we are, we've got this symbiotic relationship that we don't know anything about. And if we, our material world right now has to be compassionate about an entire other non-physical universe, boy, are we ever in trouble. <laughs> yes. Uh, we don't. I don't see a whole lot of compassion out there right now. Well, there's a lot. Uh, uh, that's an interesting thing about the um, the UFO phenomenon. That a lot of the UFO um, events that happen center around nuclear sites and times of nuclear tensions. Mm-hmm. And there have been reports of UFOs sh- flatly shutting down nuclear silos. Mm-hmm, that's right. So it's. Uh, one of the way I look at it is uh, one of the, the a couple of traditions that I study describe the um, the basic structure of matter as being a spiral that exists at every point in space and time. But that spiral entwines non-material and material energies together. It's light and mass entwined in the same spiral. Now, if that's true then it's quite possible that a nuclear explosion not only does damage to our side, but also to the non-material side. I've always wondered that, yes. And so the non-material side may have a vested interest in making sure, having the ability apparently to move forward and backward through time, which we don't have, of ensuring that nuclear explosions like that don't happen. Mm, because while it may cause a little bit of nuclear fallout over here for us, uh, might even cause a crater wherever the bomb is detonated. Right. It may cause uh, big, much bigger problems for those on the other side. And yeah. and I really we have, have no always wondered about this because when I look at the, those old films of nuclear explosions, it just it's so devastating that I've even thought, gosh. Does that extend into other dimensions uh, that we can't see? Now, there's another possibility, which is that as long as the structures of society prevent us from actually using those weapons, there's no ultimate threat to the non-material side. But if we get back into a mode where we're actively using them, there may be no choice on the non-material side but to find a way to press a reset button on us. Mm. Oh, One way of doing that is to change the tilt of the axis of the Earth, which could possibly be an electromagnetic effect. If they were to do that, ice caps suddenly melt, very bad things happen across the planet, a lot of the life is wiped out, and humanity gets set back to zero. Mm -hmm. That may be what happened at the end of the last ice age, that if the reports in India of... Uh, nuclear explosions in the past and so forth, there may have been a point at which a reset button had to be essentially pressed for the well-being of the non-material side. Mm, And, you know, okay, so when you look at revelations in the Bible, it almost sounds like that. I mean, if you can get past the weird hallucinogenic, you know, imagery of revelations, and you get past all of that, it almost sounds like a complete total reset of, of civilization and humanity as well. Now, there's several other potential ways of resetting things. One would be, if you could kill off all the bees, humanity wouldn't survive very long. We need them to fertilize crops. Mm-hmm, that's right. We'd have three to eight years of real harsh misery, and then it, it'll get really bad after that. Another way to reset it would be to warm the climate to a point where we can't survive, which we're on the brink of. Mm-hmm. Another way would be if you could create an oil sheen across the surface of the oceans, you would interfere with the natural water cycle, and that would put an end to us. 
Mm-hmm. Another way would be an asteroid hit of the right size and right impact to be able to change the tilt of the planet or to kill species the way the dinosaurs are thought to have been killed. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. It would only have to be roughly the size of Texas to be a right. complete extinction-level event. Right. So um, there are some indications that there's one set of forces working, pushing for that kind of a reset, and another set of forces resisting it. Mm-hmm. Well, what side are you on? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> From day to day, it changes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on the side that just doesn't want to hurt anybody, man. <laughs> that's that's where I'm at. I no, I, I honestly I want to understand all of this stuff and whatever the right side is, whatever the side. Oh gosh, who was the gentleman? We we're talking about the eight laws of change. Um, the greatest good. That's the side I'm on. The greatest good and the least amount of destruction and suffering. Whatever side that is, that's the side I want to be on. going ahead on into the future. So it almost looks like we're coming to a crossroads, uh, mankind coming to a crossroads. And will we know enough to to act accordingly, to make the right choices, to make the right decisions, or will we be blind and someone else, maybe someone from this non-physical universe or group or something from the non-physical universe will have to come in and, uh, and interfere in order for us to stay on the right track. Who knows? I don't know what the decision will be or, or what the action will be. What do you, what do you think? Well, where, the, um, the, where the Egyptians talk about a first time and the Buddhists talk about a first time that a Buddha passed knowledge to humanity, the Dogen re- refer to a time when humanity was restored to culture. Mm-hmm. So from the Dogen perspective, the implication is that there's been high culture before, that it was reset and then restored. Mm-hmm. So and, okay. that may be the natural cycle of things. It may be that there are repeat. This is a cyclical process, according to the way the traditions describe it. It could be that it's repeated attempts to get it right, to try to foster a structure for humanity where humanity has the emotional maturity to to not destroy itself well there you go you said it the emotional maturity to not destroy ourselves do you think we have that well you know i will have to think about that here a little bit but we do have to take another break and when we come back sure we can open up the phone lines we've covered a lot of material and your questions your comments all of it are most certainly welcome we'll be right back well i guess we're gonna find out who is still awake out there. The phone lines are open, everybody, and Laird Scranton is here tonight. We're having a fascinating discussion about the Dogon and the things they seem to know and understand that is just beyond all logic. You know, it truly, truly is. So you're welcome to send your questions and your comments. Those time travelers out there, you can send uh, what you've got to say in through the wormhole. And, uh, well, all the phone lines are open. And uh, let me just put it this way. I think it would uh, be pretty easy for you to get through tonight. (laughs) I think, you know what? I think a lot of people are out there on the road. 
as, as well they should be, probably traveling to wherever their Thanksgiving destination is, or if they're not on the road, they might be in the kitchen, or they might be already asleep, tired from a day of cooking for the feasting tomorrow. So, But in any case, phone lines are open. Um, and welcome back to the program, Laird. Um, you know, uh, I got a comment here in the wormhole that I want to get to. Uh, This is from Bruce in Michigan, who says, um, it appears that many aboriginal cultures had a grasp on celestial mechanics prior to Newton. The Mayans have made some really cool observations. Why couldn't the Dogon have done something similar? And then I thought to myself, well, I wonder, did the Maya and the Dogon get their information from the same source? Well, there are ways of of figuring that. There are certain signatures to this tradition that can't be coincidental. Um, For example, um, I'll give you some examples. Um, The use of the cubit Mm -hmm. as a unit of measure. This is a relative unit of measure, not a precise one. And uh, the first exercise that's used in the cosmological tradition is to measure out that what I call sacred geometry that aligns the shrines. The effect of that geometry works without regard to the size of the figures you draw. It's the relationship between them that, that causes it to work. And so it didn't matter that the distance from my elbow to my the tip of my middle, middle finger wasn't the same as yours. Or uh, an alternate way of measuring it was by the average pace of a person, which also differs. Um, there's E.A. Berryman has a book called um, Historical Metrology, and he lists cubits of a large number of ancient cultures, and they're all different sizes. There's quite a variance in the range of how big a cubit was. Um, So that sort of thing, there are probably um, a dozen or more, maybe two dozen different um, references that I consider to be signatures of the tradition, meaning that if a culture did it, it's pretty clear they were influenced by the same tradition. Circumcision is one of them. If the culture believes that there's a um, a chariot or a wheel associated with Orion, they were affected by the same tradition. If they developed a symbolic language that omitted vowel sounds, they're part of this tradition. And so a lot of times I can tell just, just by a, a single attribute like that, whether it's likely that I'm going to find connections to a tradition. You go to Maori culture in New Zealand, which is, I have an upcoming book in May that will discuss them. It turns out that their tradition ties to every era and every culture that I've written about. They're, a later, they're from a later period of time. They, their culture didn't um, take root until after the 1600s or, or just actually just before the 1600s, A.D., uh, very late from my standpoint. I'm looking at things from 3000 B.C. Mm-hmm. But um, so it looks to me as if they all got it from the same source, and it looks like there was deliberate instruction. If we believe the Dogen and we believe the Buddhists, um, uh, one of the concerns the Dogen had was with these non-material teachers was, actually it was a concern of the teachers, the Dogen report, was about the potential bad effects on us of being around these teachers. And the way they solved that was to sequester eight tribespeople at a remote site, teach those eight, and send those eight back to teach everybody else. And that's a dynamic that plays out all over the world in different cultures. In China, you have the tradition of the eight um, 
you know, quasi-mythical emperors who came with civilizing skills. And you have it in South America. You have it in uh, really all over the world. You have it in Egypt. Um, every place you go, you pretty much see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it looks to me as if um, a deliberate attempt was made to instruct globally but the instruction itself happened in discrete locations. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly makes sense, especially if you look at the way things are now and the way our traditions are now. It does seem to make sense. Uh, let's take some calls, Laird, and see how much trouble we can get into here on the night before Thanksgiving uh, on North American Skype. You're on the air with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Sure, you bet. Uh, Heather, uh, Laird, uh, uh-huh. nice to be here. Um, question. Uh, you're talking about Newtonian um, physics, which is not, uh, well, nowadays we've got like string theory, super string theory. So we're almost talking about like an older science, are we not? Um, no, this actually is, it actually ties to a version of string theory called torsion theory. Oh, okay. So it, okay. it uh, it aligns with modern perspectives on how matter might form. Okay. And one observation I have is, uh, like, smaller creatures, like, let's say ants, their lifespan is short. And then you got stuff, the bigger that you get, it seems to be, like, the longer their lifespans get, right? Like, right, elephants like live it. for a long time. Right. So is that is that a part of, like... Um, I guess I'm just asking. I, I think it's relative. Uh, you know, their yeah. lifespans are short, but they move fast. An elephant moves slow, yet right. it lives longer. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? I mean, that, that could be. I, I haven't really explored that. I know, though, that if we are dealing with shifting um, time frames over a long period of time, then reports of... Um, and shifting mass over a period of time, that could explain why a brontosaurus didn't collapse under its own weight. Because yeah. a less massive planet um, the, uh, millions of years ago would have been able to support a larger animal. Yeah, less gravity and stuff like that. Yeah. And reports of people living 900 years could theoretically be true. If time was running more quickly back then than it is now, then... It's theoretically possible that a person who really only lives the same amount of time we did did that over the course of 900 years instead of over the course of 80 years. Yeah, and more oxygen, more, you know, the lungs are bigger, everything. Uh, yeah, no, that's cool. Mm-hmm, I just uh, mm-hmm. thought I'd bring that up. Yeah, no, there are no dumb questions. The, my father told me. And, of course, my father was right about everything, right? All our fathers were right about everything. He said the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. So, you know, that's what we're here for. Absolutely what we're here for. So I appreciate you calling in and joining the program tonight. Did you have anything else? No, I just wanted to make that uh, observation. And right. see what you to thank you. Good, good, good observation. Who knows, right? Um, yeah, thank a lot you. Of, very often it's the... The question from somebody I don't know that opens the door for me. I t- say I have this whole, you know, uh, theoretical stack here of questions that I can't answer yet. Every so often, a piece falls into place, and a whole book's worth of that will come together. Mm-hmm. So I always uh, value the questions. Oh, yeah, and I, and if I know you, I mean, I know that you're very synchronistic in that you follow 
the synchronicities that sort of land in your path and you kind of you'll watch and see well where is this going to take me and where is that going to take me I um, do and I can give you some some examples of of how that has played out I mean some of it's been very um tangible where other people have witnessed what the synchronicities are uh, I'll give you the tan- a tangible one first um that when I was researching the first book that I self-published called Hidden Meanings, I was following Robert Temple's bibliography in his book, The Serious Mystery, and I realized that there was a particular book I needed a copy of called Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. And I couldn't find a copy anywhere. This is before you could go online and do searches. And so I had exhausted all the local and regional sources that could potentially give me the book. It was out of print. I'd even gone to the Vassar College Interlibrary Loan Service to see if they could get it, and they couldn't. And so I finally came back to my wife, Risa, and said, well, it looks like I'm not going to get that book. A couple of days later, a box turned up on our back doorstep. She had an aging cousin living in Queens, New York, with a small apartment, and every so often he'd reach critical mass and box up a bunch of stuff and mail it off to some sure relative. And in the box of stuff he sent us was my book. He had no idea I was looking for it. It was in with, like Marisa says, flags of the nation and a pair of hot mitts and, you know, just random crap. And here was my book. He couldn't even remember that he had had the book when we asked him about it. (laughs) Um, Another example is um, a few years back, I I thought I was researching half a dozen questions for different people about language. And one morning in July, all of the six questions... I arrived at answers to all six based on words that fell in the same column of the same page of the Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary. And the seventh word on that page opened up a whole book, which is called Point of Origin, that I wrote within the next three months. Those kinds of synchronicities. (laughs) Well, we need to pay attention to those. I don't know. I'm really starting to wonder if those really are as accidental um, as they seem. Let's make our way here to the phone then and see who's uh, who's waiting for us. Looks like uh, on the phone, you're on the air here with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the program. Hello. Good evening. Hi. Yes, uh, I think that synchronicity has a lot to do with uh, the inter- interdimensional I think we experience that on and off in our sleep, sometimes during the day. Uh, we may not fully get there because we're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can also say that uh, with the, the, the Mayan Indians and, and the uh, Dogons have a lot of the answers. I think we have the answer, but we just don't know what to look for. <laughs> right, I think we have the potential to to um, to find them out, and a lot of it, in my experience, has to do with how willing a person is to allow that things they don't understand are going on. These synchronicities, I mean, there are a lot of them that I have to be the densest person in the world. A lot, there are a number of them where it just took me forever to catch on that I should be paying attention to this thing that was happening repeatedly. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I think it does happen during sleep. Uh, most most people, well, some people don't don't remember their dreams. Um, others do remember pieces of them, but don't really follow up on them after they wake. Uh, the more you allow that it might be happening, the, the more you open the door to it possibly happening. In my experience. 
Yes, it's it's really mind-blowing. I've had experiences where I know that I have gone other places. It's like I'm really there. And if I go too far, I can see the earth. I can see trees before I leave the earth. I can see lights. I go up so far, and then I say to myself uh, in my consciousness that if I go too much higher, I might not get back. Uh-huh. So let me get on back down here again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm starting to wonder, after listening to you tonight, Laird, and, and so many programs that I've done <clears throat> on these things, I just wonder if when we're dreaming, are we in that non-physical universe, in the dream world? Um, I can give you an interesting perspective on that, that the... We were talking about the stage, the four stages of the yuga cycle that leave the ascending side with perfect consciousness, but an inability to act. Mm-hmm. Well, the sleep cycle of a human has those same kinds of four stages. That the final one, called REM sleep, leaves a person in a stage where they have consciousness but they can't move. Oh, oh, there it is, isn't it? Now. There are also species like dolphins where the sleep doesn't happen quite the same way. And for for a human, most of our brain goes to sleep except some little monitor that's paying attention to you know strange sounds in our house and might wake us if something unusual is going on. With a dolphin, half of the brain goes to sleep while the other half stays awake, and then they switch. And that dynamic is very similar to the dynamic that we're seeing with the two universes. Mm-hmm, right. So if we imagine that the two universes represent a consciousness, what we may be seeing is a sleep cycle. <laughs> oh, man. This is all so cool. Uh, well, I want to bring our caller back. Uh, did you have uh, any specific questions for Laird or anything else that you wanted to add tonight? Uh, no, I just think it's so interesting, the dynamics of uh, the uh, mathematical and, and the uh, theorem, uh, theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And, 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 and there's a lot more studies, and I, I really love it. Well, you know what? I'm with you. That makes, I think, three of us. Uh, yes, it certainly sucks me right in, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. And, um, and, and what I love, thank you so much for calling in tonight. What I love is when you've got the spiritual world meeting uh, the scientific world and how they end up sort of, you know, what is the result of that meeting of, of the worlds? And in this instance, in all of your research, the product of your research is that those worlds belong together and and i think that's what's putting such a big smile on my face tonight (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's a tradition in islam called the bridge of sirah and essentially it's the idea that when truth is ultimately found it will be found to lie along a razor's edge between so what is essentially superstition and science (laughs) and the idea is that whichever perspective you come at this from you may have to take a step or two outside of your comfort zone to be able to get out what the actual truth is. Mm, well, and they're right. They are absolutely right about that. Uh, back to the phone. You're on the air with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the show. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you, Heather and Laird. Well, Thank happy you. Thanksgiving to you. I recognize your voice. Welcome, man. I haven't heard from you in a minute. 
Uh, no, it has been admitted my sister from another mister. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, you were here now, and I'm glad to have you. So what's on your mind after listening to all this? Well, uh, it's, uh, a couple of things that he said. Uh, first of all, I had a, a old pastor that was talking about how God works from the supernatural to the natural. And it's, it's, I wanted to see what you guys thought about this. It's like before we were born in the spirit realm, in the cosmos, like he knew that the Lord was going to be who he was, and he knew that Heather was going to be who she was. And it's like everybody here on Earth and everybody in the universe. So we all started, say, before we were the, uh, the seed in our mother's womb, we started somewhere. And to me, it's like... Uh, from like the, the cosmic, supernatural, the godly thing to the natural. And he said something too that was really interesting uh, when he was talking about how this universe is pressed up against another universe, right? We have the physical universe and then we have the spiritual psychic universe. I came up with a theory. Ooh, okay. It's the pancake theory. Mm hmm. It's the pancake theory. Sideways, the pancake. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's like the pancake theory. It's, it's like it were pressed up. It were pressed up like pancakes. It's uh-huh. like to be the physical, then the spiritual, but then it might be other uh, 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 areas before they even came. So it's like a pancake theory. What do you think of that? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it's hard to say how it how it uh, relates. They're going to do some diagrams of how the the um, the universes supposedly form in this helix, and there are two two sides to it the same way there are two sides to a to a DNA molecule. But it's it's hard to say how it would play out in practicality. The idea is that the interface, the point of interface between the two domains, behaves like the surface between water and air. And the dynamic of gravity and time behaves very much like water pressure does as you go deeper into water. That just as pressure gets stronger as you go deeper into water, that um, mass gets greater as you accelerate um, on the material side. There are some uh, relationships there that seem the same, even down to the dynamic. Um, you've seen light reflecting, glim- glimmering off of sort of triangular shapes um, on the surface of the water that's um, a correlate to the fundamental structure that's being described in this theory of matter, the, the scientific uh, theory of matter that I'm comparing things to. Um, so, um, you know, it's it, I don't have a clear sense of, of what the relationship is between those universes. I just uh, know what attributes it has. Mm. Well, you know, I think a lot of what we're talking about tonight <clears throat> is a lot like the fish trying to prove the existence of water <laughs> yes <laughs> you know i mean that's kind of to prove the existence of air actually too yeah exactly right and so it's a little bit difficult because of our point of view or like <clears throat> like an ant trying to understand a car factory <laughs> you know it's just beyond the ant's grasp of what the world is and and that's what we are attempting to do here uh which in itself is interesting because i don't i don't know that any other creature on earth besides man even contemplates these kind of things here we are trying to understand what's so much larger than we are 
And then when you start talking about there's seven pairs of universes and they're arranged in a in a helix fashion and now you're really starting to almost almost peek up above the waterline and see <laughs> the beach you know if we're the fish see the beach out there and get a glimpse of it and then go oh my god i don't know that's that's a lot for me i'm going back under the water i'm going to talk about this with all the rest of the fish because i don't know <laughs> it kind of feels like that but that's really the bleeding edge of what's interesting in our world right now. Just trying to understand these things, these huge concepts. And then you got to go all the way back to the Dogon because they do understand these things. And how is that possible? How is it possible that they understand things? Our, our finest physicists, our finest theoretical physicists are barely beginning to grasp and yet the dogon can tell you all about it right yep and they say they know because they learned it from somebody who understood it that makes sense to me Mm. yeah and then other cultures around the world say the same thing so uh you know it's all very interesting and i don't blame people if they're listening to this tonight and they're going well i don't know what to ask (laughs) you know well, uh, there's a, there's a lot to it, and the more you think about it, the more things that eventually come to you about. It. But you're scratching your head to say, "Gee, how could that possibly be true, or how could that possibly work?" Yeah. But um, one advantage that I have in my work is that the way that Egyptian words are formulated, um, the glyphs that are used to write the Egyptian words are traditionally understood to be phonetic values, like letters in the English alphabet, but. Um, if you start looking at very small words, very, words that are written with just a couple of glyphs, there are certain Egyptian glyphs that have the same symbolism and same shape as Dogen drawings, which the Dogen explain. You start looking at words written with those glyphs, and you see what's going on. There's an Egyptian word for week, like days of the week, that's written with a circle with a dot in the middle of it, which is the sun glyph. It can represent the concept of a day. And an upside-down U, which is the Egyptian number 10. I looked at that word, and I said, well, what that says to me symbolically is 10 days. And I went and I did some research and discovered there were, the Egyptians had a 10-day week. Mm-hmm. So the symbols of the word conveyed a fact to me, a correct fact to me about Egyptian culture that I didn't know before I looked at the word. Um I ask myself, what are the chances that other Egyptian words might do that too? And as it turns out, they all do, from my perspective. That every <laughs> single word defines its own meaning. So now, I don't have to guess, um, having spent 20 years exploring that, I don't have to guess what an Egyptian word means. It tells me what it means, and it tells me the nuances of its meanings. Now, if you go to ancient China, with their early hieroglyphic language, their word for week was written with the sun glyph, which was the same round gl- circle with a dot in the middle, and they're number 10, and they had a 10-day week. So we have fundamental comparability between ancient Chinese hieroglyphs and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs at that level. Which, again, seems impossible, but there it is. You know, how, how do we explain this? Again, the only way to explain it, it seems, is with a single source of information to all of these ancient cultures. Well, we're taking your phone calls right now. The phone lines are all open, and we welcome your thoughts on all of this. It's a, it's a lot of material that Laird Scranton is giving us tonight. I'm Heather Wade. We'll be right back. Well, while everybody else is out there on a plane or... 
on the road or on a train or whatever they're doing, we, uh, well, along with Laird Scranton, my guest this evening, well, we may have figured out the source of all paranormal activity. So, you know, <laughs> you snooze, you lose. That's what I was always told as a kid. Uh, welcome back to the program, Laird. You want to take some more calls? Sure, absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into it now. I just had to figure out who's been on hold the longest. I think that's here on North American Skype. You're on the air with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the show. Hey, is that me, Heather? We're not really sure, but let's proceed. All right. I think it's me, then. We'll, uh, just, we'll just go ahead with that, yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, I was curious uh, what, I don't know, I haven't been listening the whole night, so... Uh, have you talked about what are your Thanksgiving plans for tomorrow? Are you, what are you doing? Are you hanging out with family or friends? Or <laughs> no, I haven't talked about that at all. No, I was uh, just talking with Laird Scranton about his research and his latest book that's coming out about the Dogon. Well, I'd be curious to know what are both of your plans? Are you hanging out? Are are you going to eat a turkey dinner together and and have pie or? <laughs> Well, Laird, what are you doing? Turkey dinner together by Skype. <laughs> I imagine you know, a person could. Sure. Uh, what 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 are your plans, Laird? Uh, we're just gonna have actually a quiet family day. Uh, just my wife and my two adult kids and I, and which is the way we we like it. Don't always get that, but it's a a rare occurrence. So. Hmm. Well, uh, I wasn't supposed to talk about this, but actually I have been invited uh, to another dimension uh, by a couple of greys. And I took them I took them up on the invitation, and they say they've got something special in mind. I, I really have said too much. It's, it's highly <laughs> classified what I'm doing for Thanksgiving. And, uh, and now, you know, my date with the greys might be canceled, because they did say, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this. So... <clears throat> but uh, but I do appreciate the call, and you know what? You know what is much more important uh, than than my plans is your plans. I just want you to have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Whatever you're doing, I hope you've got plans, I'm, sir. I'm on call, and it really pisses me off. And that's well, whoops. Okay. Well, all right. Um, yeah, that can be a pain. He's on call, is what he said. Uh, must be on call with his job. Which, yeah, I've done that before. I have absolutely done that before. You wouldn't think a car dealership would need that kind of thing, but when I worked at the dealership, they had to have me on call because in case somebody couldn't understand how to run the computer or they had to sell a car and something happened, so I had to spend my Thanksgiving on call. Well, uh, honestly, I am standing by in the event of a cosmological emergency. Well, you know what? I just am rest assured that you're on the case, Laird. <laughs> I know we're in good hands now. I sympathize with the people. I mean, every year, you know, you hear, hear the upset about, um, you know, retail workers and things like that being required to work. But there are any number of people in different fields who routinely have to work on holidays who are providing essential services. And I sympathize with, with anybody who's in, in the position of having to do that if they don't want to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, look, uh, I mean, I don't have to go on the air tomorrow night, but I am going to be working on shows that are coming up. You have to. You just have to. But more importantly, the police, uh, the first responders out there, the EMTs, the firefighters, you know, all those kind of folks are military. Uh, if they're on post, they're on post. 
and you know uh, we all owe them our thanks as well. We'll keep it going here to the phone. On the phone, you're on the air with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Heather. I can imagine what the uh, grays would serve, some kind of plant-based feast. Anyway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, they showed me uh, a picture of it, and it looked like some strange glowing teal liquid. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that either, because I I suspect it's some kind of hallucinogen, personally. Yeah, it could be green bean casserole. (laughs) It could. It could. You don't know. Well, Laird, uh, I've been trying to listen. I got interrupted a couple of times with some messaging tonight. But it seems to me that, you know, and I'm learning from you and I've heard you before, that all these symbols are definitely we seem to know that they are uh, uh, universal worldwide through different cultures. And so I can't help. i got to get down to the moons in Capricorn tonight to business that you can't help but escape kind of like Joseph Campbell, what he got into, that there's a theology behind this. And I don't mean necessarily a Catholic theology, but to what end, Laird, do all these things, if, if, I mean, do you believe with all the research you've done in ancient symbols, whether it's crop circles, Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, Mesopotamian things, is the universe, I mean, things are not there are beautiful things on our planet right now, but so much is going wrong the last maybe 50 years, the way we're treating it. I mean, to what end? What is the theology? I mean, do you believe that our universe is destined for entropy? Or is there, I mean, if, if we got this information from off-world or from another dimension, why are they even telling us this if we can't get it together? What, what's your feeling on this? <laughs> Such a good question, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, um, there are a lot of issues to be sorted out. The the original philosophy, um, from my perspective, is Samkhya in India, the, the, the first coherent expression of the philosophy that underlies these traditions that I've been pursuing. And it's a non-theistic philosophy, but it spawned theistic uh, philosophies that were later. Uh, the essential question in those days, I mean, it starts, starts out as science, and it looks like science, but it's defining a system where um, material creation um, happens um, as a result of an act of perception. And so back in the original philosophies, the debate was, do we require an, act of, an outside act of perception to make it happen? And if so, the ones that felt that we did postulated a deity, and the ones that felt that a self-aware intelligence would be able to self-perceive said that it didn't require a deity. So um, in terms of theology, um, I don't necessarily see it as being a religious thing. I see it as scientific. And part of what I'm trying to do with the, my most recent book is um, present the, the direct path by which a simple set of dynamics um, could cause the processes to occur that we see. I see that there is a path for that. The ultimate purpose of the interaction between the two universes, from what I see, is repeated attempts to try to establish um, a framework for life on the Earth, for a culture on the Earth, that, as I said, it's a matter of maturity, where the, the, the um, philosophical and uh, social maturity that we have um, exceeds our destructive ability. Um, and it doesn't look like we've managed to do that, even through what looked like repeated attempts. And I'm not sure humanity is really ultimately capable 
of it. Um, if so, we're very slow learners. But in terms of the cycle that I see playing out, it looks like there are recurring attempts to try to do that. Each each time the cycle starts again, uh, the attempt is to try to create a framework where um, our ethics will outweigh our um, our flaws. Hmm. You know, I think there's a large portion of the population that does understand what we're talking about. I think collectively, no. There's pockets, pockets of our population, segments of our population that absolutely get it. And boy, are they ever trying to teach us and get us to listen. And um, and so I think the answer is partly yes and partly no. Uh, some of us do understand it. Other other. Portions of the population could, could not care less, you know, and and they're they're about uh, well, you know, the material world. How much money's in the bank account? What's going on today? How much prestige do I have in the world? You know, those kind of things. Right. So uh, I, think- I see, see that as one of the byproducts of this scrolling of material energy. Mm. That mm. the natural mindset that goes with the fully descended state. And trying to overcome that might not actually be a very easy thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and those that do, then we've really got to listen to. Uh, thank you again so much for the call. Uh, he always has a good question every time. Uh, let me see here now. We're going to go right here. Uh, you're on the air with Laird Scranton. Welcome to the show. Hey, Heather. Hey, Laird. This is Tyler, the Freemason from Oregon. Well, welcome to oh. the program, Tyler. I, I grew up in Oregon, actually. <laughs> oh, right on. It's a beautiful place, huh? Yeah, really, absolutely. I was mostly in uh, Salem for elementary school and Portland for high school. <laughs> well, oh, um, very good, Tyler. I need you to get real good up and close to your phone there. Oh, sorry. How's that? Is that better? Much, much better. Go right ahead. What are you? What are you thinking right now? Uh, I had a question. It could it could be for either one of you. Uh, I've read um, one of Laird's books. The the origins of the myth and symbol, the cosmological uh-huh. origins. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I know, you know, you, you know, you're really into symbols and, and, uh, you know, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, I have a question about, if, I wanted to know if either one of you have ever heard of the, the society of the guardians of the flame. And mm. I recently heard about them. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of a, a quasi business transaction. I just wanted to know more about them. I I didn't find a lot online and uh yeah, if either one of you could help me. That Run that past me one more time. The Society of The Society of the Guardians of the Flame. And they do us a, a a basic page, but it I think and it does talk a little bit about they're into some ancient magical type rituals and uh um I think that 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 group that you're a part of, Heather, the the craft group. I forget the name of it. The, the new reform Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn. Yes. Yeah, I see that in their little bio. Like, and there's a bleep about that. Like, oh, you know, we pull stuff from there. Uh, I had just never heard of them. I was just curious if you guys did or well, society society of the guardians of the flame sounds a little bit like the guardians of the watchtowers of the is south yeah the south is fire um, but that's as close as I can get uh, Laird have um, you ever heard of such a thing well there's a book called Guardians of the Flame but um, it was written by Joel Rosenberg and so it's possible that the society of the guardians of the flame is about this uh, book and its fiction. 
but that's the only, only connection that I have to it is knowing about that book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's difficult to know, but I, um, you know, when it comes to secret societies, I know there's plenty of them that we have never heard of. Those are the real secret societies because they're actually secret. <laughs> this might be <laughs> one of them. Um, I wish we could help you. Actually, since we're not able to answer his question, I wonder, uh, do you have any other questions that maybe we might be able to answer? Uh, no, I just I enjoy your books, and I hope you all have a, a good Thanksgiving. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate, you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You know, writing a book is sort of like uh, throwing a message in a bottle, you know, putting a message in a bottle and tossing it in the ocean. <laughs> and uh, anytime you hear back from somebody, you know, good or bad, comment or criticism, it it's nice to get a response. So. <laughs> yeah, and I actually didn't know there's a few other ones after uh, I now I, I didn't know there's a few other ones that look interesting to me. So I'm definitely going to check them out that you wrote. So mm-hmm. thank you. Um, I encourage people when they do that to uh, you know, find me on Facebook if you have questions or insights or whatever as you're reading through. Um, I'm happy to walk people through pieces of it or discuss things. Okay, cool, because I always like to do that, offer a way to get in touch with my guests because, you know, people might be too shy to call. Well, or... I have to do that myself. If I'm, if I'm using, an, say, an anthropologist as a source reference for some culture I'm studying, that mm-hmm. as I'm going through their book, I very often will contact them and say, by the way, the cultures I study see this piece of it the same as you or differently than you do and just try to have a dialogue as I'm doing it. No, absolutely. And people may want to get in touch with you for those reasons. Maybe someone else is writing a book out there and they want to clarify something with you. Time travelers listen to the program uh, later on when we're not on the air and they might want to get in touch with you. So I always like to do that um, because, you know, our guests are, are very approachable and they they very much enjoy um, intelligent and well-thought-out questions. Any questions, really? If if there are any time travelers listening, the best time to contact me is last week. Right. (laughs) Exactly right, Laird. Uh, Well, let me see here now. Let's go to North American Skype, and you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Is that me, Heather? It sure is. You're the voice I've been wanting to hear all night long. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm trying to hang in there. Are you? Yeah, you want me to try the uh, headphone, the other mic? Uh, if I crash, that's might be why. So I'm going to go ahead and plug that in because I know my audio will be a lot better. Mm, okay, well, but we've got you now. I mean, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, I mean, we've got you. I, I really okay. kind of don't want to oh, do technical I'll, stuff yeah. on the air. Okay, I'll fill you in a little bit, but. Uh, some of it, some of it uh, you can call me back, and I'll fill in some of the details um, for you later. Um, but uh, one of the reasons I called in is, uh, what if the source up there is, like, sleeping half its brain, and, um, it's, uh, and one day it's going to wake up, and the whole universe is going to go poof. <laughs> yes. Well, my wife jokes that that one day I'm going to turn up the the critical pivotal piece of information and everything's going to go poof. <laughs> <laughs> 
you will cause the inescapable <laughs> yeah. paradox, right? Yeah. Matter and antimatter effectively canceling us all out. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure they worry about that at the uh, Hadron uh, Collider. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> going to do something that destroys the world. Yeah, right. But it, for them, it's a real problem. Uh, well, Bear, anything else? I mean, I I, I want to find out, but I guess I'm hesitant to ask um, how your wife is doing. Well, she's out of the coma. She is. Yes, and she's uh, semi, you know, here, but she's still got a ways to go. Okay. And her sisters banned me from visiting her, so. Okay, good. Just out of curiosity, I'm not trying to pry, and if you don't want to answer, just tell me that's none of your business. Um, But I'm just curious, based on the the works that I've been doing, because I've been working on this ever since you called and told me, um, what day did she come out of the coma, by uh, just out of curiosity? Um, it was in the uh, CCU, she started, like, becoming, uh, showing signs of coming, too. Um, she's just now able to understand and communicate. I told her what her sister is pulling off, and she goes, she can't do that! And I go, well, you better talk to your sister, because she pulled something off at the nurse's station and put me in the book. So, you know, she can, um, her sister can be pretty bossy. When she starts bossing me around, I just turn around and leave before, you know, I don't want to upset. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can understand that. But I mean, was it, was it this week? Was it Saturday? Was it yesterday? When did she come up out of the coma? Um, well, she was in the, uh, ICU and, you know, I could uh, ask her to smile and she could kind of open her mouth and, and that's about as much of a smile as she can make, but her eyes were open and, you know, she was like trying to, uh, be there, but just not really, but. Um, the last three days, though, um, she's, um, just sort of gotten to a point to where she, you know, was like, uh, well, where are you, Tony? You know, she goes, I want to go upstairs. (laughs) I go, where's upstairs? He goes, upstairs where the bathroom is. I go, um, where, you know, where do you live? And she uh, gave me an address of the place where she grew up when she was a little girl. Hmm. Okay, so she's uh, she's out of the coma, but not exactly 100% coherent yet. Okay, so so we got a ways to go yet, but there's some hope. Right, and I got my candle lit and doing positive thinking, so I think that's working. Yeah, it is, but but it just goes to show we've we've we're not done yet, Bear. We're not done with this yet. So it tells me that because I need to know this stuff to know whether or not to continue uh, the work that I'm doing. So yes, I need to continue the work that I'm doing. But man, what a relief! That is the best news I could have gotten tonight. I mean, she she's not. A hundred percent coherent, but at least she's not in the coma anymore. Yeah, it, could take, 
take time for things to come back for a person. Right. Yes, right. But but if she came out of it, then there's hope. Right. And that's all I need. I, I Just the tiniest, faintest spark of hope, Laird, is all I need, and I'm off and running. He called me and uh, asked for some um, uh, magical assistance with his yeah. wife. And, you know, I, I there's no way that I'm going to take credit. It's the doctors. It's his love. It's the love of the family and everything. Uh, but if I can help at all with someone, then I want to help. So uh, really, it doesn't matter to me how it happens, as long as it happens and as long as she um, uh, can once again be laughing. So remember, Bear, this was a deal that we made. The only thing I want when all this is said and done is just to hear her laughing in the background sometime when you call in some night. So that's all I want from all of this. I just want to hear that distant laughter in the background. But Look, we're looking good. I've done this done this before with folks, and sometimes it, it can be a long road to absolute perfect health. Uh, but what did Confucius say? It does not matter how slow you go as long as you don't stop. And I try to remember that. Right. Um, good to hear from you, Bear, especially tonight. Uh, all right. Well, we may have to hold our caller here over the break, uh, but you are on the air with Laird Scranton, and welcome to the show. Hello, is this me? It might be. I don't know. We'll we'll figure that out as we go along. <laughs> Hello, Laird and uh, Heather. <clears throat> I, Hello. I, this is really interesting, the Dogons, um, and, and as soon as I saw this show, I wanted to listen Um but how unique are they to Africa? I mean, are they like a standalone tribe, or, or are they really integrated into the <clears throat> their region and the continent? Or, or tell me more about them, please. Mm, that okay. is um, a great question. There, there are related tribes uh, to the Dogon. Some of them were studied by the same anthropologist. There's a group called the Yoruba. There's a group called the Bambara. Um, there are a cluster of, of North African tribes that were pre-dynastic um, in the region of Egypt uh, called the Amazigi tribes related to the Berbers. And so um, all of them, or uh, many of them, ha- uh, preserve some percentage or some degree of the same tradition. And there are different ele- elements preserved in slightly different ways by each one. But enough of them so that... Um, if someone were to say, well, uh, the French anthropologist just made up the meanings of these words for the Dogen, you can say, absolutely not. Look at here, all these other tribes that these anthropologists had no contact with who have all the same meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they serve as a cross-check. Uh, of those, the Dogen seem to have done the best job of preserving the details of their tradition. And I think that's partly because they're located in a remote site and they were able to, to exert control over their own culture um, try to isolate it from influences outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we got to take another break, but I wouldn't mind learning more about them uh, when we come back, Laird, or okay. you know, just to find out where what do we now do with all of this information and what your future plans are. There's so many different directions we could go with this right now. And thank you very much for the call. Laird Scranton is here tonight, and boy, did he ever uncover new information about the Dogon that goes all the way, all the way 
to creation itself. Fascinating. Tonight, we'll be right back. Well, it is officially Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. I hope you all get into delicious food comas. And uh, Laird Scranton is here tonight. Boy, you are really staying up late with me tonight. What is it, 3.30 a.m. where you are? Yeah, it is. Uh, we normally we tend to stay up fairly late around here anyways. This isn't too too far past my bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I was wondering about that. I kept thinking, you know, at the family dinner tomorrow, Laird is probably going to have a little bit of bedhead, and it's all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. My wife, Risa, says that the truest measure of a good Thanksgiving is what she calls the pie-per-person ratio. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> She's looking for a, a value of one if she can. <laughs> we have actually this year a pretty good pie per person ratio. But <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, then I'm Tell doing good on that. I am doing really good on that. My my pie to person ratio over here is uh is I think two to one. I've made a peach pie and a pumpkin pie, <laughs> That's good. and that is way more pie than I need. Uh, but you know the Greys invited me, and I don't know if they've ever had pumpkin pie or peach pie. As a matter of fact, I mean they like strawberries. That's what I hear from folks. Is well the Greys they like strawberries. Just wait till they get a load of peaches. Oh man, well. You know, we were talking about the, the last caller asked uh, there before the break a little bit more about the Dogon, and uh, and I would like to know that too. All I know about them, Laird, is that they know about astronomy, and that's a mystery. We don't understand how they know these things. They know things that they should have had a microscope to learn about, and yet I don't think they have microscopes over there. And that they, right. they, they perform these beautiful ceremonies, and they've got beautiful masks that they wear, and, uh, and a gorgeous, I don't, I don't know what to call it, and I don't want to be offensive or, or thoughtless, but there's some sort of ritual wear that they, that they use, these gorgeous costumes that they wear, right. and then they do their dances. It's called the Siggy the Festival, and the word Siggy, S-I-G-I or S-I-G-U-I, is actually an, Egypt, an Egyptian word, Sakai, that means to celebrate a festival. Uh-huh. The, okay. the Siggy Festival is their festival of Sirius, and uh, the Dogen say publicly that um, they celebrate this festival every 60 years, but in fact... Uh, once it gets to be 50 years, the priests make an excuse why this time they have to celebrate it early. <laughs> They're trying to disguise the fact that the tradition is based on the orbital period of the two stars, which is 50 years. Uh, there are a number of, of um, aspects of the various traditions where they fib like that, uh, where different cultures fib like that, and Buddhism does it too. Um, I was reading about esoteric, which is the secret form of Buddhism, and exoteric Buddhism, which is the public form. Now, Exoteric Buddhism. I, I was getting concerned as I was writing my book because the, the farther I got with the details of this deep science, the more it looked to me as if all of the processes of, crea- of the creation of matter are pretty explainable. They're pretty understandable. And every religion I've ever um, heard about says that they are fundamentally unknowable. So what's going on here that it looks fairly simple, but they're telling me it's unknowable? Well, Exoteric Buddhism says that these processes are fundamentally unknowable. But esoteric Buddhism admits that that's one of their little fibs. That in fact, esoteric Buddhism says they're entirely knowable. 
So <laughs> I thought, well, that's that's good confirmation. It means I'm not crazy here. I'm not so far off the map with what I'm doing that it, it goes outside of the boundaries of what the religious traditions are saying. Mm, well, does that mean then, in other words, there are things that they tell the outside folks or their initiates, their monks uh, and right. such, and then there are things, there are secrets that they keep. Right. That uh, there are certain pieces of it that, unless you're a trusted initiate, you're never gonna uh, gonna find out. But having never been an initiate of one of these traditions, I'm not really bound to the same rules of secrecy. I never promised I was going to keep anything secret. This is stuff I'm I've been researching on my own. There's no priest who said, "I'll tell you this, but you got to promise not to tell anybody." So. There, is, there are lines. I spent a great deal of time before I published my first book trying to um, consider what right did I have to be writing about things that these ancient cultures have been trying to keep secret for thousands of years. Well, the way I, the point of view I finally came around to was that this scientific tradition looks like it was aimed at a technological culture. They certainly were not trying to teach, um, you know, ancient tribal people how matter forms. There's nothing they were going to do with that. The only people who were going to recognize what these symbols were was a technological culture. So it looked as if part of the goal was to help us shortcut our learning curve on things we didn't understand. Well, I could see that the Dogen tradition only was probably only about 50 years ahead of where our scientists say they are publicly now. So that if this entire system, the, the the effort that went into it was ever going to be of any value to anybody. It had to come out soon. Otherwise, it wouldn't have the benefit that they expected. So I thought, best to write about it now and allow 50 years worth of benefit if there is the possibility of having that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, very generous of you to put so much time into something that's for the rest of our benefit. But there are other pieces of it. I probably have an entire book's worth of material that I could sit down tomorrow and write about if I wanted to, but it touches on things that such great, sincere effort was has been put into keeping these pieces of it quiet mm-hmm. that I just don't feel good about writing it. It would out certain things that that... Just ethically, I can't do it, mm-hmm. and so uh, it ends up it'll end up being a book that I may end may end up writing, but I probably won't end up publishing. Mm-hmm. Well, but one uh, of the projects that that is a possibility for me to move on to next, but um, that's the the sort of quandary I'm in right now. Uh, I do have a book on the Maori that'll be out in May. Mm-hmm. That, that really was intended to be before this book uh, if I hadn't thought that this material was so urgent that I opted to self-publish it ahead of time. Otherwise, I would have had to wait to probably uh, late uh, 2019 or early 2020 to have it published through the regular channels within their traditions. Oh, yeah, no, we need to know this stuff now, not in 2020. That's that's way too and long to wait. My problem was that any discussion I would have on the air with somebody like you invariably leads to these questions, <laughs> and I had the material to give the answers, and I wanted to give the answer, but it's not fair to a listener to talk about material they can't then go out and learn more about if they wanted to, and it's not fair to the publisher to be talking about it now when their book won't be out for a year and a half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my solution to all that, I had approached the publisher and tried to get them to to fast-track this one, and they couldn't do that, so... In the end, I opted to 
to self-publish it. Mm. Well, you know me, you and I are friends. If I ask something that you can't get into, uh, you're welcome to say so, and it's fine. With I'm not going to, I don't get offended all that easily, so, you know, I get it. Some things are not any of our business. Or, like you say, it's unethical, and actually your answer to that question just gives you that much more integrity as a researcher and an author, and I'm sure everybody listening can appreciate that. I certainly do. Um, here we've got us uh, another call here, Laird. Let's go ahead and take it while we can. Uh, on the phone, you're on the air with Laird Scranton, and welcome to the program. Happy Thanksgiving, Heather. Happy Thanksgiving, Laird. Hey, uh, thank you. Mike Montana. Well, another voice I wanted to hear tonight. Welcome, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. I want to say happy Thanksgiving to my friends and friends. They're good people, and I'm sure a lot of them are trying to call in. Um, I wanted to ask Laird, I'm, I'm really not familiar with the Dogon or really Aborigines, but I was wondering the first, when you started talking about all this, I was thinking they must have some sort of hallucinogenic uh, substance that they're taking to allow them to kind of thin that veil between this world and the others, which might allow some of them to experience the universe where they see the, all the planets, they see all the galaxies, they basically travel through the universe or interdimensionally and see other worlds that maybe they can't even explain. But I was wondering if, if that was true or if it's something else that maybe they just um, were visited, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? And the, well, the, the anthropologists say that the Dogen um, have a thorough understanding of the the plants and drugs that are in their local um, region, and that they are very very fast uh, have the facility to uh, to use them medicinally and whatever whether ways they want to. So, if they wanted to take hallucinogens to do this, I'm sure they could. But that's not how it's being represented by them or by the Buddhists who have the matching system. That the way it's being represented by them is that they, in ancient times, received instruction in a material frame. They talk about specific actions their teachers were taking um, that are material world actions and material world concerns that they had. And so even though um, drug... Um, enhanced contacts are one of the ways that non-material information is understood to be um, accessible to certain people. Mm-hmm. That's not how they're saying that they did it. They're saying we had actual physical teachers here who were originally non-material who taught this to us. And so then my task as a researcher is to say, how can that possibly be? Is there any perspective from which that could be reasonable? And what the, my new book does is it lays out how that could be. Aliens, Mike. <laughs> Was aliens. Thank you for the answer. <laughs> yeah. George. <laughs> I yeah. accused George, George, uh, Giorgio Tsoukalos of wearing his hair that, hair that way to mock me. <laughs> 
You know, it was really funny when uh, I got the opportunity to speak with him and Kevin Burns. And, uh, and you know, every guest sends notes to me uh, before we do the program. I do my part and guess who's their, their part. And on the notes with Giorgio Sucolos, it was actually on there to ask him about all the memes and everything and all the, uh, all the jokes that are made about his hair. Apparently, he doesn't mind. He gets a big kick out of it. And I got, I got the biggest kick out of that. <laughs> you know, so the next time I have him on or the next time you see him or something, you know, go ahead and crack a joke. I don't think he minds. <laughs> I don't think he minds that. I think that it's not apparent to the general public how deeply he thinks about some of these subjects and how informed he is about some of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the memes will represent him in a comic way when it's something that he actually has a serious viewpoint on. And so that's the only thing I would say is that um, I would encourage people to, to try to understand that this is a serious guy who's trying uh, in his own way to do some serious work and that some of the ridiculing of that isn't really warranted. Mm, no, right. It's true. Uh, but we take ourselves so seriously, especially in this day and age. I don't even know why. And uh, wow, it's nice to lighten up now and then. And I just I just got the biggest kick out of it because normally guys like that would just be all kinds <laughs> of offended. Oh, my gosh. Well, also, no. there's, a, there's a Clark Kent effect that happens with his hair or a Superman Clark Kent thing. Uh, he was at a, a conference I was speaking at and um, um, turned up at the presentation I was going to make, but um, he was wearing a hat to cover his hair. And when he does that, he's almost unrecognizable as himself because that's so much his signature. And so he was able to sort of slip in the back. He and his wife were able to slip in the back and listen to my presentation without um, the problem of their star quality interrupting it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And but I so bet. I thought, first of all, a very generous thing for them to do. And second of all, that, that's an interesting effect that wearing his hair that way has. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And then I bet when he takes off the hat, it all comes out. <laughs> yes. You know, meaning the hair and the personality. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, no, he has dedicated his life uh, to this material in much the way you have. You've dedicated, what, over 20 years to yeah, understand? So it sort of draws you in. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's sort of like the wand chooses the wizard, you know, in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, no, it kind of is like that. In fact, um, somebody pointed out to me, because oftentimes when I start the show, I like to ask people, especially when they're studying paranormal subjects or cryptozoology or UFOs especially, there's almost always an interesting story. So I'll ask them, you know, how did you get interested in the paranormal? And someone, I forget the name now, if they're out there listening, they'll know who they are, sent me a wormhole message and said, no, 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 you've got it backwards. You see, you've got to start asking people how the paranormal found them. (laughs) Yes, well, it's true. I mean, my first book I accidentally wrote. I was just keeping notes for myself and trying to keep the material straight and realized at a certain point that I had enough material to publish a book and that it was so easy to do it, I thought, why not go ahead and do it um, through self-publishing back in the uh, early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, because it does find us, doesn't it? And, and it wraps us up in its fold. And then, you know, the deeper you go, the more uh, difficult it's going to be to ever get out of it. But at some point, you don't want to because you're just so interested in one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing to that thing that ends up blowing your mind. Right. And 
Honestly, um, each time I finish up a book and I think I'm, uh, I know what the next subject is I'm going to move on to, um, after the first book, I plan to write the Maori book. Um, I knew there was a connection. I knew I could pursue it. And every time I'd finish up a manuscript, I'd say, okay, now I'm moving back to the, the Maori book, and I would get bumped by something. And so now, uh, eight books later, <laughs> I'm finally, finally to the Maori book, and I'm glad I was delayed because I didn't at the time have the perspective to connect the dots the way I can now with the Maori material. Mm, wow. Well, and, you know, this book, by the way, what is the title? Um, this book is called Seeking the Primordial. The Maori book will be called Decoding Maori Cosmology. Aha, uh-huh. Seeking the Primordial, because I need a copy of that. <laughs> I can't tell you when I'm going to carve out the time to read it, but I uh, need a copy I know of exactly what you mean. I have so many things. I have every good intention to watch that video somebody sent or read a manuscript somebody is would like me to look over or whatever, and it just becomes an impossible task. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. There's just not enough hours in the day. You know, I need the shamans to extend that for me. If they would, please, I need at least the 34, 44-hour day, something like that. That would be, uh, that would probably, then I'd really start getting stuff done. I knew um, I should have taken that speed reading course. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Seeking the Primordial. That is That is a pretty cool title. But what you've done with this book, Laird, Seeking the Primordial, is I don't know uh, if you intended on doing this or not, but it almost explains all the paranormal phenomena. Well, it opens a new kind of a door because it it lays out a path that has the possibility of being a scientific path to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, right. And connects so many different spiritual dots, if you will, and... This idea of one physical universe and a non-physical universe, boy, that, that has just lit my imagination on fire tonight. And now I'm running over so many different stories I've heard of the unexplained or encounters with the unexplained. Well, if you think about these things coming from a non-physical universe and that the non-physical universe is trying desperately to get our attention, so much starts to make sense. Right. And trying to distinguish what is a coincidence from what is might be more than a coincidence is a trick. It's a skill that a person has to has to cultivate. Um, but the research I do for my books involves trying to anchor things that you can't really prove to five decimal positions. They, these are things that that um, creative creative ways have to be found to be able to um, demonstrate that a thing is true. And that's the same thing with this non-material um, communication. Um, it's uh, really a, a tricky process to be able to justify it to somebody. Mm, well, sure, sure. Um But yet there are scientific examples one can point to. Uh, One that I think of here right away is, uh, since you brought up the Large Hadron Collider and CERN, uh, one of the things that they're doing over there is they're trying to detect other dimensions, one of the 11 other dimensions um, that exist, by detecting the gravity of these other dimensions. Well, okay, so is that a scientific way of saying we're trying to detect the non-physical universe? Right. I mean, it, 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 it is backhandedly. Yeah, it is. 
Mm, yeah. So again, you're right. It's tricky to try and prove these sort of things or to try to say, look, there's a real world scientific basis for the things people like the Dogon talk about and the Buddhists talk about. But in the scientific world, there's really um, a strong um, resistance to a mainstream scientist ever directly addressing anything that's fringe. Um, as an example, I wrote a book about Emanuel Velikovsky, who was a friend of Einstein's. He had a, a really controversial theory about the, how Venus formed. Um, he wrote in 1950 called Worlds in Collision. Well, he's, from a scientific point of view, he's the crackpot's crackpot. And it's, <laughs> if you want to kill your, your scientific career, make any announcement that ties to Velikovsky and you'll do it. So uh, astronomers scrupulously, even though point after point after point has come up in his favor over 60 years, that any time an announcement is made, it's accompanied by a second announcement whose purpose or whose effect is to distance it from Velikovsky. So we've now reached a point where the astronomers who study the the exosolar systems, the solar systems that are not ours, Mm -hmm have come full circle around to embracing exactly the same stuff that El Velikovsky said, and yet still never mention his name, and the people who are looking at our solar system don't acknowledge it. <laughs> oh, my. Well, you know, they're, they're just afraid uh, of getting into territory that they, that they think they should not be stepping into at all. I mean, it leaves the fringe to the fringe. And <laughs> what I see happening is that more people, more mainstream, is starting to touch on fringe topics. But like you said, they're not mentioning you know, names right. or, or researchers in the field. Uh, but I'm seeing mainstream news outlets starting to talk about the big boom that we hear uh, these days. I'm seeing mainstream news outlets talking about UFOs, talking about Bigfoot, and all these crazy things that they ought to not be talking about. It's happening slowly, but it is happening. And that's a fascinating thing to me. I I welcome it, absolutely welcome it, even the criticism, because, hey, I've done enough shows to know now. We've got answers to your criticisms. Bring it. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, um, one one of uh, a very interesting thing happened as I was researching this book. There's a a physicist who I met early in my process who um, had been waiting 20 years for someone to come along and say to him what I was saying, which was basically that this ancient cosmology is actually science. And he took my first book and the manuscript for the second book uh, home with him after this conference. Um, and rendered opinions back to me. He's the one who connected the the system to torsion theory. And he said, actually, it's very much right on point with what torsion theory says. Well, as I was researching this book and getting down to some of these details, I approached him again. And every time over the course of probably a decade or more that I have uh, spoken with this guy, he has been 100% supportive of the things I say. I now address this stuff with him, which rests on concept of uh, ancient concepts of an ether. Mm-hmm. And what I got back from him was ridicule. Now, I know that ridicule is the response that um, scientists who are, are presented with um, 
UFO data that looks to me as if it's too close to what the actual truth is, that's how they've been trained to respond, that when a person gets too close to what, what is actually true, the reaction is ridicule. That's never been this guy's reaction to me. I wrote him back and I said, um, you know that my um, job in this research, the, in my field of study, what I have to do, the requirement for me, is to follow this material to where it leads, knowing that it might not lead to a place that I can prove is true, or it might lead to a place that actually flatly isn't true, but I still have to follow it faithfully. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and after that, he sort of, sort of led up on it. But um, you get down to these concepts of, of an ether, which is central. Uh, the idea is that the energies that are at the very bottom of this system of matter, uh, one of the dynamics that causes this to work is that when two streams of energy come together, they tend to spin and create a vortex. You see it with two streams of water. You see it with streams of energy, electromagnetism, um, and other kinds of energy. Um, when those come together, they end up forming what what I call an ether unit or what this uh, the scientists I've been comparing to calls an ether unit. I guess we can talk, to, talk about that after your break. Well, we've actually found ourselves out of time. We are uh, we are at the end of the program, but that is still uh, incredibly interesting because, again, there's a scientific basis for what we've referred to for years and years and years as this ether, but, uh, which uh, I find really kind of cool. was very interesting not to get uh, an academic response as to why this might not be true, but instead to get ridicule. <laughs> Uh, well, that speaks volumes all by itself. Um, are, do you have a website right now, Laird? There, there is a Laird Scranton website, but it's a fan site, and it's not really very well maintained. The contact form them there supposedly, uh, I mean, I've had messages from it, so it, it will reach me. The better place to find me is on Facebook. Okay. All I joke right. that people shouldn't mistake me for all the other Laird Scrantons. <laughs> right, because there's thousands and thousands of other Laird Scrantons in the world. What are you kidding me? There's only one Laird Scranton, and that is you. Uh, I have had a great time talking with you about all of this tonight, and I look forward to your book about the Maori. And we are about to be booted off the air here. Uh, so I just want to tell everybody out there, happy Thanksgiving and good night. I will catch you uh, next Tuesday. We will be live once again. Good night, everybody. Good night.